Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Welcome to Apologetics Live. We're here to answer your questions and challenges about God and the Bible. Meet your hosts from Striving for Eternity Ministries, Andrew Rappaport, Dr. Anthony Silvestro, and Pastor Justin Pierce. Well, we are live, Apologetics Live, here to answer any questions you have about God and the Bible. We can take that challenge. You have a question, we can answer it. Let me bring in Dr. Silvestro. Welcome, sir. Hey, how are you? Good, good, good. So We haven't been on together in a little while. In a long time, between both of our travel schedules, and, and we both hit the road next week. Right. Oh, so, yeah, yeah we're right. both going to be out in Kentucky. Not as far of a ride for you, granted, but a little bit more for me. But uh, we will both be out there uh, next week at The Truth Matters. Uh, and then the week after that, I head to Washington, D.C. So just got back from doing uh, an ambassador evangelism training with Pastor Kofi out there in Medford, Oregon. Great church. It's a church plant. Uh, starting out well, starting out solid, and they, the first thing they wanted to really do in their equipping conferences is evangelism. A good thing for a church plant to do. <laughs> so this is a ministry of Striving Fraternity. We welcome you guys to go check out everything at strivingforeternity.org. Uh, I know that I have family coming in in, oh, less than an hour. They are on their road, uh, waiting to come down. And so the, once... Uh, but just before they get here, I'm going to have to bow out, so I'm going to hand it off to you, Dr. Silvestro. And you set up this this uh, the early part. For those who are new, I should actually describe how we do this show. We don't do this very often. We should. Uh, this is a, a live show. For any of you that have any question about God in the Bible, you can just go to apologeticslive.com. At that site, you will be able to see where to participate. There's a little... Uh, StreamYard icon. It's a duck. I don't know why it's a duck, but it's a duck. And just click on that and you can join us there. Ask any question. We do go to uh, YouTube and Facebook and see where people put in comments. Sometimes we catch them. They sometimes go because we get so many comments on the different platforms. We don't see them all. So the best thing to do is come in and ask any questions. 
And so, but what we try to do is teach you how to do apologetics and we deal with different issues. Tonight, we're going to deal with a specific university and some things going on there and a student from there. Uh, I see Pastor Josiah is also backstage, so hopefully he'll come in and give his wisdom. But uh, I, I do got to say, Anthony, before we, we start, I just uh, finished reading a little book that you read. Uh, it is called Halloween Under the Light of Scripture, The History of Halloween by Check this out. Our very own Pastor Justin Pierce. What do you know? This is only about 40 pages. It's not very uh, big. This was really something that he just did as a starter. I think he's planning on doing an, a longer version. It is available on Amazon and not very expensive. So if you want to learn a little bit more about Halloween and get prepared for October, I know it seems a long ways away, but uh, he has a really good way of showing you, kind of like Pastor Josiah does, of explaining how to do hermeneutics. That seems to be an important thing for all of us here, and uh, he goes through explaining hermeneutics and how to apply it to an issue like Halloween. So I recommend that to y'all. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good book. I got it as soon as it was available and, and read it. And I honestly, it was good. I can't wait for him to to build this out into a bigger book now. Yeah, which he said so, he's going to do. Yeah, um, you know, we I, the, I preached at a church the last two Sundays and it was all on on uh, apologetics. I did evangelism training there three years ago. The church has taken off. On, in evangelism and in church growth as a result of, of the work they've put in since those sermons. Uh, I went back to teach on apologetics, so to build off of, uh, of some of that. And uh, it's, it's amazing to watch what happens in, uh, in a church that, that has this type of, of growth. Yeah, so if you want us to come out to your church and do our ambassador evangelism, or maybe, hey, we got a lot of evangelism going, but we got people that have questions. You want a, a presuppositional apologetics course. We come in for a weekend and help your church. That's what Striving for an Attorney does. We come in and now some of you are saying, but you don't know my church. It's a small little church and no one comes in to visit us. Yes, we do. That's actually exactly who we target. We want to go to the churches that no one else will come to because they're just too small and they can't afford it. And so we have our monthly supporters that help us to be able to go to churches where we fly across the, the country and get nothing, not even a love offering. That's okay, um, because that's that's what our monthly supporters do. So uh, I'll, I'll also give that as a shout out. If you want to support us monthly, we wouldn't mind it. Just go to strivingforeternity.org slash support, and that's a way you could do that. So before we bring in our guest. Well, let me just add anything else that you want to mention before we, we get to some questions. No, I, you know, I think we should get to your questions. Um, I do want to give a shout out to my wife though, because we, you know, you know, you know what, you know what spring is Andrew on Thursdays in Ohio, right? It's, it's the start of garage uh, sales. Yeah. You today. poor thing. So, so hence I got a little more of a tan today. Um, we've been out garage sailing and, and, uh, and as you know, she does a remarkable job of getting into conversations and she got some doozies today for us to get into. One is Pentecostal who is <laughs> all over the board. It was, it was really incredible. He literally told us that Jesus is talking to himself when he's talking to the father. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> it was, it was really, really strange. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, so for an apologetic though, right? I mean, I think one of the best ways to address the one is Pentecostals, is I say, well, how are your sins paid for? 
And I just walk him through the understanding that the father's wrath was poured out on his son, according mm-hmm. to Isaiah 53. You don't understand the atonement until you understand that there was a penalty to be paid on that cross. The same penalty would be paid by sinners in, etern- in hell for eternity yeah. if it wasn't for Christ's sacrifice. They also, I guess, have schizophrenia at the baptism of Christ. Well, because because all of a sudden there's Jesus in front of him, but but John is John's hearing the Father and seeing the Spirit. Wait a minute. Yeah, well, he tried to say that they were just stories for us to to get an idea of of what's going on, and so he he begged for personal revelation. And uh, I guess his father was a bishop in the Oneness Pentecostal Church with lots of personal revelation. To which I said, "How is he any different than Muhammad? Yeah, well, or you- Joseph Smith." And or Ellen G. White, or any of these other false teachers that are out that there. That nails one of the biggest problems. So we're going to be doing, a, on my Rap Report podcast, uh, I'm going to be getting together with uh, Nathaniel Jolly and on Eki Who Do Truth Be Known podcast. And we, d- we decided we're going to do a podcast together. What are we going to discuss? Is Let's discuss the two biggest problems in the American church. The, the sufficiency of scripture and hermeneutics. I mean, when you're asking for personal revolution, revelation, you're saying, the Bible just isn't enough for me. I need more than God's word. But that's essentially what they're saying. And so I, I, I do got to say, I mean, this is, this is just kind of funny because what you, what you end up doing— there are people who asked if Justin Pierce is alive in the comments section, so I just thought I'd put, put up, up that he's uh, that, <laughs> on the Money Brothers is what he said there. So, so here's the thing: you you have a different style of evangelism. It's called it's called uh, garage sale or yard sale evangelism, right? You go where they're looking to be out in their ha- in their garage or in their property, and they want you to come to them. Yeah, and and they're not going to leave because well, they're trying to sell things. <laughs> so, right. so here's the hint, though, if you're going to try this. So it is a good thing to do. The thing is, is when other people show up, then it, it becomes where they can just jettison your conversation to go over to someone else. So uh, it, if you want to do this now, if you want to get the good deals, you go early in the morning before everyone gets there. If you want to have the conversation, you go after the morning crowd leaves and That's they're right. sitting there all day bored out of their skull, hoping to sell just a few more things. And they got That's nothing right. else to do and no one else to talk to but you. That's right. And you, and you speak the gospel loud when you do give it so yeah. that anybody else shopping can hear it. Too. Can hear it. So, you so know, we, we make it worthwhile. We had a, we had a good time today. And, and if there's any question, uh, folks, let, let me just, I, I was telling this story recently, Anthony, you'll remember it, but Anthony's wife, Julie, has an ability to speak to anybody. And it, it was quite interesting. So Anthony and I, when our, our wives were out, we were speaking in uh, Redwood City, California. We were staying at, they put us up in an Airbnb. And before we headed over to the church, we decided we'd just take a walk around the neighborhood just to enjoy the, the beautiful weather. And there was a guy who had his garage door open. His the, the concrete of his garage door was paved with something, so it looked like a marble floor. He said he uses it for an extra room when he has parties. But Julie just kind of like walks right up to him, starts a conversation over the floor. And before we know it, he's showing us his Afro, Afro turf in the backyard and then bringing us in his Astro office. The fake, the fake grass that Ray Comfort has in his backyard. Okay. Yes, the, right. <laughs> but he shows he, we go from there, although I will say that guy's, you know, fake grass was, was way more comfortable and felt more realistic than Ray Comfort's. But we, from there we end up in his office. 
He's like walking us all through his house. People he just met on the street. Of course, once we were in his office, I quickly identified him as a Mormon, which truly was like, how did you know that? He had the Mormon Jesus hanging on his wall. <laughs> yeah, you picked that off pretty fast. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we were talking because I was talking to someone. And they, they were like, oh, yeah, I, I walk in. I can see the SDA Jesus because they can spot that. They, they all have their own version of Jesus there. But so let's get to some questions that came up early. Uh, I know that that you have uh, Sean in the background. We want to bring him in. But I know I got to jettison soon. So one of the questions I was asked, and I was specifically asked not to give this person's name. He doesn't want his pastors to find out. This is someone who uh, had listened, came in touch with Apologetics Live through the R.A. Fuentes debate, if you guys remember that, on Calvinism. And so uh, since then, he's discovered his, uh, his pastors are very much against Calvinism. And when he was trying to answer some things, it came up as a question of what translation of the Bible do you use? And when he said he, he uses many translations, the pastors got upset and told him 1611 King James Bible is what you should be using. Now, uh, so he, he asked, I want to give an answer, it, it, but, uh, and he didn't want to, he couldn't come on. Obviously, he did, doesn't want his name known. Got it. So here's the thing. How do we answer the King James, it's known as King James only controversy. People who believe you must use the King James Bible. There's two groups of people with this, if you run into this, folks. One is the people that actually think the 1611 is inspired and the other is those that just prefer the 1611 they, they, or, or the King James. Those that think that the, the King James is an inspired translation, but they don't hold to the 1611 as inspired have a bigger problem. Just so you know, the 1611 was the first edition, but it had been there had been several others. And so you, you ended up having um, the, you know, up until the 17, I think it's 1786 um, is is with the last uh, edition. Uh, and so what you end up seeing is that the 1611 was originally done because you had King James, who was after a battle between uh, the Catholics and then the Protestants, there was this battle where basically England was being split. So why did King James want a Bible in English he wanted an English Bible to satisfy the Reformers, but he wanted it to include the Apocrypha to satisfy the Roman Catholics. That's an important distinction, because when they say the 1611 was inspired by God, they're saying that the Apocrypha was inspired by God. Now, many of them don't know that the 1611 had the Apocrypha in it, because they don't use a 1611 version. They use a version they can read in modern English, which is the 1700s. If I give you a 1611 version, it's going to take you a little bit of time to realize there's no S's, there are F's, there's no V's, there are U's. There's different word spellings. The, the King James Bible in 1611 didn't have the standardized English we have today. There was things that they did that caused confusion. For example, the transliteration of two words. One is deacon, we have an English word for that servant, but that transliteration, because at the time in the Anglican church that they were doing this, they didn't want to translate the word servant for those who are acting as leaders. The other one is the word baptismo. We have an English word for that, to plunge or to dip, but they sprinkled or poured, and therefore to translate that word was a problem. 
So why do I bring these things up real quick? Because if the 1611 is inspired, then God created confusion in his inspired text, especially that most of the people that are King James only are Baptists. The baptism one is kind of an, a touchy situation. Uh, but the more important thing is that if the 1611 is inspired, then the God inspired the Apocrypha and the Catholics would be right. We have to understand why King James did that. Now, there's a lot of reasons for if people say, okay, well, the King James, the 1611 is not inspired, but the King James is. Well, let's remember that this was based off a, a, a text of scripture, Greek text of scripture that was rushed, and it, it, it didn't have, it didn't use as many of the manuscripts that were available. So this becomes an important thing to look at because this shows us that when we look at this, there are better translations because they use more of the manuscripts that were available. We also realize that when we look at the the King James that we have, uh, people will say, well, this is, this is the text that God inspired or God wants us to have. The initial several prefaces to the King James all stated that the King James should be updated as language changes. They did not believe. The, the, those that did the translation did not believe it was inspired. So if your pastor is arguing for that, be concerned because he has left uh, really focusing on Christ to, to focus on a translation. They, they end up worshiping a book rather than the author of the book. Anthony, you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, it's the 1769 is the one that people typically read from. So that's that's the newer version of it. And, and from my understanding, I don't remember which one it is and where I read the quote at, but a number of the a large por- a percentage of the King James was actually copied from from well, Tyndale, Geneva, or Wycliffe. No, no. It, it, well, it, it's so Wycliffe had his Bible. So yeah, it's Wycliffe. It's like seventy five percent of it is not that's new. What I heard. It, 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 I mean, there was an English translation. So so the question is, if seventy five percent of it was from a, a, an already existing translation. Why did they need a new translation? It, the very simple reason was he was trying to, I mean, every king or queen was, because it was really the two queens before, that were trying to take the whole country reformed or whole country uh, Roman Catholic, and they were take and every time they did that, they took all the pew Bibles out of every church, replaced it with Latin ones, or took it out and replaced it with the Geneva one. And so what you ended up seeing is that he decided he would do it in English to satisfy one but do it add the apocrypha satisfy another. So if, if much of it's already existing, much of that translation was already existing, then what he really added was the apocrypha. And and mm-hmm. and most people aren't going to want to have the believe the apocrypha when they hold to King James only. Uh, now some yeah. will make the argument, and and J- uh, James White has a great book on this called uh, King James Controversy, because some will make the argument that they, that in the and they really focus on the NIV. That was where they had the problem. And I'm not a big fan of the NIV, but, you know, it has its place. It's just should not something you should use for study, for serious study. The, uh, the, what they'll do is show that, oh, look at these passages where the deity of Christ was removed. Well, as we do textual criticism, we realize the deity of Christ wasn't in that passage. That's why they, they it's not that they removed it. It's that in the earlier manuscripts, it, it, would, it wasn't there. It was added in. And one of the neat things what James White does is he takes, I think it's the New American Standard and the King James, and shows passages where that same argument, he says, well, see, here's where they deny the deity of Christ, because the earlier manuscripts had that in there. They, they call him Lord Jesus. And so it, that argument can go either way. Yeah, that's right. 
All right. So one other question that I was asked to to answer on the show is the question of, can I explain the difference between pro-life and abolitionism? Okay. Many people think that those are two of the same, uh, that we can have uh, abolition, we can have pro-life. They're both toward the same agenda. Yes and no. So this is a good way of me illustrating this. And this actually was came, comes from the Daily Wire. Uh, the Daily Wire gave uh, 10 most common pro-life arguments or pro-abortion arguments and ways to debunk them. And so the question is, what about rape and incest? So I'm, I'm going to read their, their response, and I'm, I want to use this as the example. So it says, uh, this is not an argument. It's a hypothetical rape and incest only account for 1% of all abortions. These are hard and rare cases. They must mitigate the individual moral culpability of a woman to choose abortion, but they do not change the fact that an unborn child is a distinct human entity, i.e. a human being, i.e. a person, and therefore worthy of the same protections the rest of us receive. We do not kill the child for the sins of the father. If you want to execute someone for rape, execute the rapist, not the baby. Now, that's a good, pretty good, but here's the problem with that. And this is a good way of illustrating the difference between pro-life and abolition. The argument they made there is good. It is a human being. That's important. And so an abolitionist says, we need to outlaw all abortion, all of it. Why? Because as that thing, as that argument says, it is a human being. Pro-life argument would be, yes, we need to outlaw all human life because it's a human being. But we can take the small steps and say, okay, let us create laws that outlaw all abortion except for rape and incest. And that gets us a little bit closer to the point where the abolitionist says, no, all of it outlawed, rape, incest, any argument. That's a human being and you protect it. And and so I thought that, that the answer they gave is a good way for me to illustrate the difference between an abolitionist and a pro-life. And pro-life is going to say we could take those incremental steps. Let's let's fight to get this small bill passed. And here's the reality, folks. That small bill that you think is small, you have to fight tooth and nail for anyway. <laughs> the same fight you have to do for an abolitionist one anyway. So might as well go for what is right and say it's all outlawed. So that would be that would be my way of illustrating the, the difference. Anthony, your your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, you know, I want to remind everyone we had a great show with with Sarah Cleveland, um, who is yes. nationally known on, on this subject, and we had her on. I think it was September of last year. So go in the archives and, and go find that show. Um, it, one thing that she did say though, and you know, because there's different there's disagreements among the abolition movement. She was really clear that as an abolitionist that she believes the right position is we, we want to outlaw all abortion. I, I completely agree with her. The pro-life movement says, as you said, Andrew, that we believe in getting increments. Now the abolitionist, there's some abolitionists that are, are happy to say, look, I'm going to fight for abolishing all abortion, but if I get an incremental bill, I'll take it and then keep on working. And, and that's what Sarah had said. Um, some abolitionists don't like that either. They don't like compromise whatsoever and so, you know, it's it, there, there's a little spectrum in there, but the bottom line is, as you said, Andrew, it's it's do you believe in abolishing abortion from the get go, or do you believe in just taking baby steps towards that that process? And that is episode one hundred and seventeen. 
if you want to go search for the title, just go to uh, christianpodcastcommunity.org and just do, you can search for just Sarah Cleveland or the full title is Abolition of Abortion with Sarah Cleveland. So that was a, an excellent episode. Uh, of course, Anthony was running that one. So that automatically means, folks, those of you who are regular know what that means. It means it went into overtime. Or Anthony as time. we know here as Anthony time when it goes over. So, uh, so that was several episodes ago, like 30 some episodes ago. So I encourage you to, to check that out. So those are the two questions that I was asked if I could answer. And, uh, for those listening on the podcasts, I will try to drop the, uh, link to that previous episode in the show notes. So I'm going to, uh, at this point, I'm going to hand it over to you because you have the guest and you know him better. So you could introduce him. I, I do. Yep. So let's uh, let's bring in, first of all, Pastor Josiah Nichols. So, Josiah, thank you for joining us tonight again. Hi. We're, as you can tell, we're secretly making you a regular now, too. So, yeah, between him and Justin Peters, I don't Anthony, I don't know if you're if you're able to watch. We had Justin since he's been here more than me in the past few months, he was the, he was the host and I was the special guest. <laughs> he's, he's been on a bunch. Yeah. So Josiah could have done that too. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but now I want to bring on a, uh, a special guest. And, uh, and so without further ado, cause it's a little later than I thought it was going to be Sean, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Uh, doing well. Thank you for being on. And I'll ask you to speak up just a little bit more if you can, okay. or get the microphone <clears throat> yeah. closer to you. Yeah, sounds but, good. Uh, Thank you for being on. And so this is really interesting what uh, what I had, what had happened to me. So I was out in Boise, Idaho area back in March and uh, right after Shepherd's Conference. And I was teaching for six straight days and somebody came up to me and, and said, hey, I have this letter. I want to email you if you don't mind seeing it, because there's a student who's been fighting back at Northwest Nazarene University, which is in the area, which just so happens I know several people that actually go there and have had issues with uh, with the doctrinal positions on, on a number of the press professors there. So I took interest in, you know, look, anybody who is going to stand up for truth, I take an interest in. I want to see what's going on. I love I love that idea of, of people standing up. And so uh, I was happy to read this letter. What I expected to be you know, one or two pages ended up being much more than that. And, uh, and then when I saw the yeah, revised it's, version, it's, it's like 28 pages worth of. Yeah. Of it's about 17,000 words. It's a, it, it, it's about four times what its original size was. I revised it, but, uh, it's uh, that's to trying to counteract some of the allegations of me taking things out of context. Uh, you know, I've not only do I have all the evidence supporting it behind it, but I'm like, I'll incorporate more of it in the letter itself to, you know, shock and awe, I guess, is the, the strategy I went after. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it, though. I mean, you took a very balanced. 95 pieces. Yeah, right. 95 pieces <laughs> of. Yeah, you should have nailed this to the front door. I, maybe, I'm, You'd be charged I'm with vandalism. Right now, maybe I'll go over afterward and do that. I do that. Take a picture of no, yeah. <laughs> Maybe Maybe use a thumbtack so you don't get charged with vandalism. Yeah, right. Good, yeah. good idea. So, and we designed to have the show today because you literally just graduated. Yeah, commencement was just last Saturday. So, so now they can't stop you from, from graduating. <laughs> no, I mean, I, some professors did want to see me expelled, um, but that did not succeed. Uh, fortunately, for me anyway, uh, so that was good. 
Yeah, it's I, I, I appreciated the scholarship that you really went through in this in this paper. You know, in the show, a lot of our listeners know this that uh, I had done what ended up being over a hundred hours of research. Initially, it was about sixty hours of research into a uh, a cult in Iowa that uh, pastor had been doing a lot of uh, very naughty things behind the mm-hmm. scenes. And, uh, and through many hours of, of research and talking to witnesses and whatnot, essentially the same thing you did, Sean, is, is, is had lots and lots of documentation to be able to walk out there and, uh, and be able to say, look, this is, this is what's going on. Here's what the witnesses are saying. And, uh, and, and at that time, I did give every opportunity for the other side to show up on the show, which they didn't do at any point. They wanted to threaten us. They wanted to tell us not to do this. They wanted to do all kinds of stuff. But the last thing they wanted to do was actually address the allegations that were brought forth by multiple witnesses. In in fact, their first line of defense after you wouldn't stop was to come after me and, and tell me I had to put a stop to you because of what you were doing. And so it was to go to kind of go to the, okay, if you don't stop, we'll go to your boss, uh, you know, the head of the ministry and tell him to make you stop. And in which case I said, you can come on the show. And I actually dealt with that letter that he sent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got, to, you got a chance to deal with it too. So, um, so, so, you know, for me, I took a, a, a huge uh, liking to your letter, Sean. And, uh, and obviously we've talked a few times now. Um, and I will say that, that I, I waited until today because I want to make sure you were in the clear, but you know, I reached out to the Dean and the acting Dean of the, of the school so that I could say, Hey, look, we're going to have this student on the one that, you know, you guys tried to expel the one that you um, are saying he took all these professors out of context. And of course, in the background, I've already talked to other people. So I I've corroborated yeah. Sean's story anyway. And uh, so I, I knew better, but what the surprise was is as you sent me those phone numbers, I made the phone calls today. Um, and as you said, the one Dean's out of town, the acting Dean was in town and, uh, he ended up calling me back about four hours after I called him. And, uh, boy, that was interesting. And, and before I get into that phone call with Dean Richard Thompson, um, Sean, just in general, you, you obviously had a number of concerns at this school and, and, you started in your freshman year noticing these issues from a doctrinal perspective. And, uh, and how, how many of those years you were four years in school, how many of those years were you actually trying to address these situations with, with professors themselves? Cause I know you did that with deans, with other people yeah. within the Nazarene yeah. church. So, um, I, I, not necessarily framing in terms of this doesn't seem to fit the what the faculty policy manual says, says are what the Articles of Faith of the Church of Nazarene, which, uh, since the religion faculty, they're required to affirm. But I, I know that even freshman year, I raised some questions. Uh, one of the uh, Bible professors um, in intra-biblical literature said something like, well, well, Sodom and Gomorrah has nothing to do with homosexuality, which I'm like, well, I mean, I, I've read Robert Gagnon, so I know that that's just nonsense in that point. And people who say that usually don't end up, you know, affirming uh, orthodox doctrine on homosexuality on that point that turned out to be the case and so i wrote to ask him a question never responded but it began especially i i think uh let me think here probably late sophomore year right before we all we went online for the second half of the semester and before we resumed in person in june my junior year um you know and 
uh, besides what I, my comments in class, um, we can talk about more, more specific incidents later. But it was that year when a number of students had written a tract or a pamphlet handed out to all the on-campus students and many of the faculty, um, and basically arguing homosexuality, basically pro-LGBT, uh, it's fine, Bible's fine with that, uh, didn't use to change its policy with respect to that. I responded to the tract's uh, authors, they had an email address on the back of it, it was just an anonymous email. But one of the students, she responded to me with her uh, campus email, uh, we talked really briefly, but then she said, I'm going to hand you off to my good friend, Dr. Bankard, who was at the time the only philosophy professor, and I'm like, well, that's kind of, hey, kind hey, of weird. Uh, hey, why just would- be clear, though, <laughs> just be clear. These were pro-homosexual tracks. Yeah, it was that were being uh, handed out on campus. Yes, by a number of students. Um, uh, as I said, one of them responded uh, with her own email address to me. Um, and, and by the way, this is this had so this is when I began to think, oh, this is probably much more serious. Because being, if I wanted to be particularly charitable, even some of the more objectionable things I had heard previously, such I mentioned in that uh, Bible class. Uh, maybe you know, maybe he's just saying about that particular passage, but he'll still affirm, yeah, homosexual practices are immoral. Gay marriage—that's not legitimate. Uh, you know, it's conceivably, you know, it's not probable. But if I'm going to be charitable, maybe you could take it that way. Or even when the same professor at lunch said to me and another professor, "Well, you know, whatever you think about the issue, maybe Paul's admonition better to marry than to burn with lust. Maybe that could apply to gay marriage. Whatever you think about the issue." I'm like, "What's?" Well, kind of weird um so too with this professor this uh, dr banker the philosophy professor he had a, a rainbow sticker on his door but being charitable i'm like well it's upside down so it, you know it wasn't, it wasn't roy g biv it was you know biv biv your or whatever you know upside down maybe it means something else and maybe he was playing devil's advocate when he said after class that probably some gay marriages are fine but when this came around i'm like oh this is probably not uh not looking good, but but, but he responded because she had emailed uh, the student and me emailed him and said want to meet, and so he responded later that day or sent an email to me. So we met shortly after that, and he had said he had offered to speak to the professor, uh, the, the faculty, or uh, rather the board of trustees, I believe, about the student's concerns. Um, and so I've, that's kind of set uh, me to be a bit more uh, take it with more urgency. My junior year, um, where a few issues came up. Um, for instance, a certain author uh, a professor was using for a class. Um, I had certain other objections to the author as well, including the content of the book. But what I what I raised with the professor was, well, you know, this guy he's pretty well known for being an emergent church figure, and among other things, being pro LGBT. I'm just afraid the tacit implication here is that that the, some students who will look into this guy will be like, well, it's no big deal then, and in a kind of an unforced error on this professor's part, he responded, one of the first things he said was, well, Wesleyans disagree about gay marriage. And I'm like, yeah, but should they? Like, that's <laughs> the real, who, who cares about the descriptive fact? Uh, but that was a weird way of putting it. And then he said, well, I'm confident our OT and NT professors wouldn't wholeheartedly agree that, uh, you know, that the author of Leviticus, they don't, of course, believe in mosaic authorship. Uh, and Paul wouldn't would condemn the practices in a gay marriage and i'm like okay but and i eventually asked him because of this like well now i'm confused now what, what do you think about homosexuality and he never responded which was kind of weird so i i had a lot of these things i mean it was around this time is why i'm like okay i'm going to set out to document more carefully my concerns um which eventually gave birth to this letter um but before i I'll, I'll just continue this the, the gay tract came up again in my junior year see one of the art professors under the auspices of the chaplain's office, speaks speak at chapel, 
and I just rewatched it. Um, I, if someone has my letter, you can actually, I think there's a link to their unlisted YouTube video. So do you want me to give the letter out in a, uh, in a link? Because I can, I can do that if you, if you wish me well, to. If you want to, that's fine. I mean, I, I've, I view it as I have a, it's a public copyright. You can do whatever okay. you want. Okay. So it. if you, if you uh, give that to me, Anthony, I'll put that in the show notes. Okay. I'll, I'll email that to you here. Yeah. It's yeah. But but just can just briefly this is, this gay tract is about this is about a year after it was originally written distributed. Um, this art professor speaks at chapel. I just rewatched it recently. It was it was worse than I remembered. Very pro LGBT uh, and other more extreme woke stuff. But one of the things he he quote he 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 commends the students who wrote the tract. He quotes from it. And among other things, he said, and, you know, was, imagine if LGBTQ students felt accepted here for who they are. I mean, if I'm being really charitable, I could give an orthodox reading to that. I mean, the whole context wouldn't fit with that, but, you know, maybe I'm a charitable guy. But then he continues, and for who they loved without judgment. And I'm like, hmm, I have a, I have a problem with this. So I, I write to him. He never responds. And I write to the chaplain, one of the chaplains anyway, and he kind of just – ignores my concern, which I thought I put pretty well uh, and explained clearly. And he said, well, all, all this professor was doing was saying LGBTs people are made in the image of God. And, I'm, and I thought to myself, uh, did you not listen to the same thing we listened to? They were c- completely different. <laughs> That's not what he was saying, or at least not only what he was saying. Um, and But uh, fortunately, he, he's no longer chaplain here, so that's good. Um, so uh, that's when a lot of my concerns, like, that's why I began to like, crystallize, like, this is a much more widespread issue, uh, my experience being mostly with the College of Theology, um, but uh, as well. And But probably my most extensive interactions concern, I think, um, the atonement and biblical authority or the nature of scripture. Yeah. So, um, so let's get into those a little yeah. bit later. I, I okay. want to, cause I want to kind of do um, one thing at a time as, as we walk through it, you know, the issue of homosexuality is a huge one. So in our, yeah. in our garage sale evangelism, I'm going to put you on uh, with me here with, with our, with a garage sale evangelism today, my wife got in another conversation with a couple who uh, said they were, there are church members. She, she handed them each a gospel tract. That's how she opened up this conversation. And, and the guy's like, Oh, what's this? And my wife's like, well, it's a, it's a gospel track, gospel presentation. And he goes, Oh, and then the wife pipes in who's sitting there and she says, Oh, well we go to church. turns out they only go to church like once every so often. Um, and it was to our old mega church that we left years ago when they went, when they started to go emergent church. And, uh, and she had a hang up in the church regarding homosexuality. And so she just couldn't understand how God was going to condemn homosexuals. She couldn't understand um, why we can't just allow people to do what they, they want to do. Is it really that bad? Did the, does the Bible really speak against this? I mean, all the same tired old, old arguments. Yeah. Um, and for me, this is a real, this is a real issue because, you know, I've taught on the social justice movement now. It's going on, I think, four years. And, and I know Andrew and I were two of the first people in the country that were really really pressing this issue in a systematic way. And, uh, and people have asked me for years, do you believe that intersectionality or critical race theory is what's going to, what's going to really injure the church? And I, and I've said no literally this whole time. I don't believe those are, I think they're issues. 
but enough people know about them. The homosexuality piece, on the other hand, is different. Yeah, well, if I could add something. So one thing I've also just noticed from either sitting in on some ministry classes where this, uh, we had one semester where it was one of the main focuses, but we've also had other discussions, either in classes or elsewhere, not to mention some conversations and observations I've had about with other students. Um, well, just to give one example of that. I, I actually spoke at Student Chapel at the beginning of last semester in my testimony, and um, in it I just briefly mentioned um, and I think in a very, I mean, uh, to sound cliche, winsome way, but I, I just briefly said, you know, it, it, this is, homosexuality is an important issue. It's not something you can just be like, well, you know, I don't really know what to think about it, whatever. It's uh, particularly, especially if, if, as Christians have always said, homosexual practices are intrinsically and severe, like gravely immoral. It would be unloving and uncharitable not to mention this or to you know to teach this. And then I, and I moved on after that. And a number of students complained. Uh, so that the student chaplain is a student. Uh, it's a student government position. The next week, it didn't explicitly say I was wrong for what I had said, but at least in the parents, a lot of students walked that back. So there were a lot of a lot of confusion. Many students who disagree with the. Uh, well, this orthodox doctrine. And that's part of why. So even if you didn't have some of these explicit pro-LGBT comments and actions by many faculty uh, in the College of Theology and a few elsewhere I know of, yeah, that would be problematic enough because you have this issue that you you can you can get to. You can get at the root of it. You can in, in classes and in, in pastor, uh, professors and private conversations, you can instruct in the truth well, in the, they have a relationship, but they either don't want to or they go this pro-LGBT route. Um, uh, if you want to give them some specifics, I have I just pulled my letter up here. So I yeah, so I mean, okay, so let me ask you this. How yeah, We will get in, I, I do want you to get in yeah. some, in, into some specifics on this. How far did you take this? I mean, you, know, uh, you mentioned... Mean by how far do you mean by what? In, by, uh, in terms of, you know, there's a, there's a hierarchy within the Nazarene church. Oh, yeah, so I'm, with very, at various times I had talked, uh, probably the Atonement would be a good example to illustrate this. Um, through a happenstance, I, I give a presentation on the Eucharist in one of my classes, and I give the presentation of different views, including, like, the Roman Catholic view, and then uh, the professor criticized me. I'm like, no, I think I presented it accurately, and then I gave, and part of that was... Uh, my critique uh, of that view in terms of the mass being a propitiatory sacrifice. I think that infringes upon uh, the supremacy of the cross. That's one of my problems with it. And in that connection, he said, well, I, I, I well, there's some passages of scripture that support a, you know, the cross being a propitiatory sacrifice, but I don't really think that's the best reading overall. And I'm like, well, and what are you talking? I mean, the word's explicitly used in scripture. And so we talked about that briefly. I then looked up what some other professors had said about it, including uh, the philosophy professor's uh, essay with a biologos, um, where he argues against it, as well as historical fall. And I talked with him, met with him. Um, because I was then later, this is that's late 2020, um, in early 2021, in mid 2021, uh, I was doing a Sunday school class on the atonement, doing some research, and I said, Well, I wonder if you guys, I, I emailed this to the professors, uh, who I talked with previously. I wonder if you guys would, you know, I think you guys should read this book, I think it's very beneficial. I think it was Leon Morris's uh, uh, a witness of the cross, something like that, something I can't remember the exact title. And I wanted to, and I engaged one of, the, one of the professors, just never responded again. But I engaged with a conversation trying to reason with Dr. Bankard for a while. And then he's like, Well, I'm going on sabbatical. Why don't you talk to these two other professors? And so I emailed them. Um, one of them, 
never this is the third one of them involves a third professor and never responds and so I spent several times uh, over the course of about eight nine months trying to talk about this topic with several of the faculty um, and including uh, some people who are these I, I don't think I've articulated I'll hear all my concerns with the department as a whole but I, I having talked with my pastor off and on as well as a few others about some of the concerns in August when I prepared the first draft of this letter I shared it with my, my pastor, uh, who has since retired um, after about 55 years in ministry. And he said, he said well, we'll you know, keep, finish it up, and uh, I'll, I'll forward it to our district superintendent. For those who don't know, uh, Nazarenes have a – it's like a hybrid between an Episcopal and a Congregationalist polity. Uh, but in any case, so the district superintendent has care in a certain region, about 30 or 40 churches, maybe less, depending on where um, – and since NNU was in this, the Intermountain District, uh, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll forward it to him. And, and, and so he does so. And, and, on, and this, the first draft was just initially just intended for him. We have this postscript saying, well, it'd be great if you and I, basically the district superintendent, me and my pastor could meet, talk about some of the concerns I've seen uh, and, and see what he wants to do. About a month goes by, so now we're in. Uh, so he sends it in early uh, early September of 2021. About a month or so goes by, we haven't heard back neither me or my pastor from the Intermountain District Superintendent. I notice that all the trustees in uh, U Board of Trustees are on campus, or at least a lot of them. Some maybe for COVID didn't come. Well, I know that the. Uh, there's seven districts of the Church of Nazarene in the Northwest Educational Region, which is where Northwest Nazarene University is. And I know that they're members of the Board of Trustees and so and their colleagues with the Intermountain District Superintendent. So I said, I'll, I'll send it to the rest of them. They're all together. They might be able to meet, talk more effectively. Uh, both as clergy and as trustees, they have uh, a vested interest and oversight in this. Uh, and, then, and then they can, if they want to, talk with... Uh, either the dean of the college of theology or whatever and so that's that gets their attention that's when things start going uh it's also one of them uh, uh one of the people he's actually retired he sends it some and a few other pastors and a trustee and so it get that's where it gets out of that's probably where you initially through somewhere along this chain unit you, you get it uh initially but that's how, that's how it uh came to the attention of in the systematic way of the college of theology so we're talking now early october i think october 8th is 2021 is when I sent it out to the uh, some higher-ranking Nazarene clergy, yeah. and also trust members of the university. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of people that that are aware of of what's going on, and and oh yeah, uh, yeah. My pastor says that even at like pastors' conferences and so forth, he's he's heard dozens, and I think the word he used was like two hundred, probably a hundred or more complaints about NNU from pastors who heard it from mm-hmm. their students who go here. And that's and that just Nazarene pastors. I mean, Nazarenes only account for about one-third of the student body. You have a lot of Baptists, non-denominational. You have some, I'm sure you have some Presbyterians and Anglicans in there, too. So, and I don't know if you want to, I, you know, even some evangelical Methodists, they're not exactly fans of some of the teachings in the College of Theology. So, it's, it's I think it's well-known. And a lot of it's easy to discern just by their published work or online comments. Like, you don't even need... My yeah. you get a good sense of what but, but of course as a as a professing Christian school, you know unsuspecting parents are expecting to send their students to a school that is going to be safe oh, they have yeah. correct doctrine, everything else right so you know I, I know there's a lot of listeners that would not 
not agree a 100% with Nazarene doctrine in general, yeah. right? I mean, so I, I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about Orthodox Christianity that, that we would all agree on. And so, so I, I did pull up the letter, right? And I've yeah, spent do, a lot of do time you have a, reading. Do you have a link to the letter? You sent me the actual letter, but Sean, is this letter available on the internet anywhere? Um, well, I have a link on my own Google Drive. I plan to keep it permanent, um, so I can uh, afterward I can send it to you, or okay. someone will give that to you. Do, yeah, do you I mean, because I can show Andrew, or could it be afterwards? You, no, no, no. I, just so I have it, we can either do that, or if you want, I can. I mean, I could post it at Striving for Eternity if you want it there. You know, you you decide, Sean. Let me know. Okay, I'll, okay. I'll do that. So I, I did pull up. Um, I did do a lot of you know reading through these things, and so Joseph Bankard is a professor at NNU, yes. and a professor that you mentioned several times in in your letter to the school. Yeah. And Joseph Bankard is the one who wrote the article "Substitutionary Atonement and Evolution." So for for people who don't know, BioLogos is is a heretical organization um, and a very dangerous one. So BioLogos. Um, teaches anything against the Christian worldview they possibly can. Um, they are they're while, while claiming to be Christians. Christians. While claiming to be Christians, you know yes. they, they basically yeah. teach the world's point of view and then say, "But we're Christians too." Oh, we're Christians, <laughs> right? To, to be and, fair, one of the other biologos uh, essay authors in that series, yeah. Bankard's essays in, does criticize Bankard for rejecting. Uh, well, I would say just rejecting the atonement. So. They're not as bad as they could be, but yeah, I, I'm not a very much a fan of BioLogos for yeah. several reasons. And by the way, the BioLogos is—I don't know if it was founded by, but I know it's funded by Francis Collins, who yeah, yeah, who's a Roman correct. Catholic. Everyone thinks he's a Christian; he's not. Um, and Francis Collins is a pro-evolutionist. Francis Collins is the guy who is just implicated as one of the guys taking lots of money in the background with Dr. Fauci. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. With yeah, with yeah. payouts to do what they did in the whole COVID response. I was going to bring ago. that up in our, you know, if we did a news section. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, this oh. is the same Francis Collins, and and uh, and so I, I, I just want to share with listeners: this is how dangerous um, Francis Collins has been for mm-hmm. us as biblical creationists. BioLogos is really well funded. He invented something called the Gene Gun and uh, made boatloads of money off of it, funded this organization. And here's what they do that's really dangerous. They take Christian school teachers. They all expenses paid to come out to their camps throughout the year. They give them, they pay for their airfare, pay for their lodging, pay for their food, pay for their training, and give them free credit, credit hours that they need for their continuing education every year. And so teachers naturally take the free course, take the free everything, they get a trip to California. And while they're out there, they're being indoctrinated with non-Christian values, starting with evolution. So that's who BioLogos is. And, and I know I speak out against BioLogos a lot because of what they do. I really wish Christians would put their money towards training Christians and Christian school teachers and flip the script. Oh, but, but come on now, yeah. Anthony, you know that the truth doesn't get supported with money. No, you know, no. it's mean, only falsehood over our country through yeah. the education system starting in 1905. So yeah, I know you're absolutely right. Fortunately, some of this, that kind of stuff hasn't yet taken uh, a stronghold in 
uh, Nazarene circles. Although I, I, I could be wrong about this, I'm, I'm afraid that one of a, a Nazarene academic was partly responsible for find the creation of BioLogos. So uh, sorry for that. But fortunately, <laughs> by and large, uh, it has not taken too strong a hold. Although if you have several faculty yet, and this is just true, of not just in and you, but other. I've heard Point Loma is worse than Northwest Nazarene University. That's another Nazarene school. So it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of time to change. Uh, that's one thing I say just in, in general is the faculty are not necessarily representative of, well, certainly evangelicalism generally or Church Nazarene in particular, but they can be representative of what will be. And that's the concerning thing. And so uh, that's part of, part of why I was driven to... Well, look, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if there's a podcast that Andrew, myself, Justin Pierce do, right, and one of us says something that's wrong, we're going to lovingly correct one another, not just allow it to slide and allow false teachings to to happen, right? This is the way we're supposed to be responding in life, sharpening one another and and, uh, watching each other. I mean, that's what we're we're supposed to be doing as, as professing Christians, it's obvious that in most Christian schools today, that's not happening. That uh, that heretical doctrine's getting in there, and nobody's saying anything, and it just snowballs. And eventually, you end up getting a bunch of liberal theologians that that end up uh, inoculating well, the schools. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a school. I think Calvin College is probably in a worse state than NNU is. I mean, they have a, there's a recent uh, scandal of sorts with. Um, a faculty member who would get married in a gay marriage, and a professor who officiated at this, you know. But they're like, we keep our we keep our official we uh, we keep the Christian perspective on this. Is that's Calvin College's position? But they were willing to like devolve the institute or whatever particular program as an independent thing to keep her on, so they could also still say, oh, we actually keep our policy. Uh, which is like what's well, kind of deceptive there, and besides, they have like they have a, like a, they sponsor a student group that talks about how to be allied to the LGBTQ community. So they they only keep it by the slenderest thread. That you know, but on paper they may be great, but in practice, the problem is that whatever their policy and positions are, if they're not willing to enforce it. So uh, I don't know if NNU is too far beyond being able to be turned, but I mean, hopefully not. Uh, or if it is, at least hopefully that comes to attention. Whatever a clarity, I think would be useful. But yeah, so a lot of, lot of Christian higher education is uh, bad yeah. state. You well, know, it can be it can be cleaned up, and you know we we know that that happened at Cedarville. Yeah, I was just going to yeah, I was going to just mention that because that's a great example. I mean, he what he did was was <laughs> brilliant in my mind. Uh, it, I mean, it was heading liberal, and he just offered all the professors. Okay, here you go. Here's your contract for the year. Here's our doctrinal statement. Uh, you have to sign our doctrinal statement to have a contract. If you don't agree with our doctrinal statement, you you can't teach here. So, But they knew many of them didn't. So what did he do? Just offered them a deal. Hey, you get one year. If you, if you right now say, I'm not in alignment, I can't sign this, you get one year that you can teach, that you can go look for a job, and then you get one year severance. So you can have up to two years to find a job. And if you find a job, you get a year's salary. So that looks pretty good if you already know you don't agree with the doctrinal statement. But if you sign that you're in agreement with the doctrinal statement, and we find on Facebook, yeah. we find you teach something else anywhere else, you're immediately fired. Nope, no package, nothing, just gone that day. And so, yeah, and so what happened was basically all the liberals were like, uh, I'll take your money and get out of here because I'm going to be gone anyway. And so, so they left. And so yeah. he, he was able to turn that around. 
Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely. Some of these ideas around to some of my friends, they might find it useful. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was great. So, so I wanted to bring well, up this, but, this before you paper get to, you talked about. Before you get to the next me. topic, let me just because I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna get going. So, bef- what I will do because I know Anthony, you you you'll forget. Let me let me give a word to our sponsor. <laughs> uh, and and actually, we we have a, we have a, a new sponsor as well. But uh, first, I'm going to bring up. Uh, my pillow for those of you who are regular you know that my pillow is uh, sponsors this show uh, along with, with other things at striving fraternity you can check them out go to mypillow.com use promo code sfe that's promo code sfe that will get you uh, to be able to to find um, what we have uh, available there and so what we have there is the fact that you can get yourself a wonderful pillow uh, we just had someone recently that got one and didn't realize how good it is. And so the, it, you will get a good night's sleep. Uh, and the nice thing about it, not only do you get a good night of sleep, but you will also be able to support Striving Fraternity if you use the promo code SFE. And so they, you can also call them the number right there, 1-800-873-0176. That's 7 uh, 800- 8730176 use the promo code SFE that is how you will let them know that we sent you that they will continue to support us and uh, if i was to switch over to pastor Josiah there he is he's helping us promote it right now as usual uh there he is falling asleep it, it wasn't because of anthony that he fell asleep that is because he just loves his my pillow and so we we appreciate that with him thanks for the modeling the mo- <laughs> let me give another uh thing if you are a podcaster uh this is a an affiliate link you can use for us at Striving for Eternity, and I'm just letting you know, I want to I announce this and why we're doing this. It's an affiliate link where we will get no money from. You go, well, why have an affiliate link? If you are a podcaster and want to get reviews, go to My Podcast Reviews. At My Podcast Reviews, you can sign up so that you would be able to see your reviews from your podcast anywhere that is there. You can help to, it has tools to help you encourage people to give reviews. So if you wanted to give a review, uh, you would be able to use their custom-made. So for us, for example, here you go is the link. If you wanted to give us a review, you go to lovethepodcast.com slash apologetics live. And that will give you, they from there you can write us a review, which by the way, we enjoy because that way we get to know what you think. But if you go to mypodcastreviews.com slash, and it's question mark, R-E-F equal 196. That just lets them know that you got there from us. So why are we doing this? Why are we giving an affiliate? Why, do we, why are we uh, having an affiliate link where we don't make money? Why are we promoting something and having an ad where we're not going to get any money from it? This is done, uh, this, this tool was created by a Christian a Christian podcaster, actually a Hall of Fame Christian podcaster, who uh, recently, because of his Christian views, uh, they are trying to cancel him, and they're trying to encourage everyone to get off of using his My Podcast reviews. 
And so we are encouraging everyone to go and subscribe and use this tool if you have a podcast. And so that way you'd be supporting another Christian brother who is under attack. And uh, that way he would be able to, to uh, well, it's gonna ha- the tool's going to help you. I know that. I use it, as you could see. Um, but uh, it, it'll also help him out. So we, we need to stand up. It is time for us to stand up against uh, the world and their pushing against our views. And so... Um, with that, yeah, it, <laughs> Melissa wants me not to turn off the uh, the live stream. I'm never going to live that down. I was in an yeah, airport. No, you're not. Poor, poor Sean. I'll, let me explain this, Sean. So I was in yeah, an airport. Actually, Josiah mentioned it before you came on the show and when I told him you were going to pop in at some point. <laughs> he got nervous. Yeah, I was, I was in an airport. Of course, I was maskless, unlike everyone else at that time, walking around in the airport. And I figured I'd jump into the podcast and, and, and help, you know, mention something uh, while I was trying to get onto a flight and then i ended the broadcast instead of leaving <laughs> so let me end the broadcast right now oh yeah. <laughs> so i'll try not to do that but yeah. uh but yeah no i do i i uh i'm gonna i'll listen to the rest of this offline as i got family coming in so sean let me just say thanks for for coming on thanks for thanks for standing up and and doing what you're doing uh, because this is what we need to do, folks. Uh, some of you may have seen what I posted on Facebook, uh, Facebook Live. Anthony, I don't know if you saw that. Uh, but I've just gotten fed up with these people, the liberals who are, feel that they have the right in public to say whatever their views are, and they expect that we as Christians don't. And so we, I had a woman, there was two people in front of me in the line at the grocery store who, uh, when this leak came out about Roe versus Wade, said, she goes, I just think it's crazy that people would be against abortion. So I just turned to her and I said, well, ma'am, I, I agree with you. I think we should have the right to murder people. And, and, and she said, well, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that, that you know, women have, have a choice. I said, I agree. Women should have a choice who, say, who they murder. And she goes, well, I, I would never do it myself, but, but I think that, every, that you know, women should have a right to, to what to do with their body. I said, that's right. Women should have their, I would never murder someone myself, but people should have the right to murder whoever they want, you know, because she's never been challenged. And she's like, she goes, well, you know, you as a man don't have the right to tell me what to do with my body. I said, excuse me, how dare you? I never told you how I identify. <laughs> And she had this incredulous look on her face, and she's like, you're a man. I said, so men can't tell women what to do with their body? She's like, that's right. I said, well, seven men made abortion legal. If you think that they're wrong in doing so, you should speak out against abortion. And she left the store very upset. You know, but I say, I apologize to two people in front of me. I said, I'm sorry, but I was raised to believe that we should keep our opinions to ourselves. But if someone wants to voice it in public be expecting a response. And I think it's time for Christians to do that. And so I'm glad that you are standing up against this liberal onslaught at our universities, especially ones that profess to be Christian and standing up and saying, no, we got to put a stop to this. So humbled clay. I, uh, I identify as having a beard. So, <laughs> well, humble Clay uh, says, yeah, my, "I love all my brothers." My head, so it's, that's where it is. Yeah, yeah, mine's not on top either. <laughs> well, Anthony, you got to read what you put up. Humble Clay said, "I, I love my, all my brothers here, but bearded brothers are better." So, yeah. <laughs> I guess Josiah wins for the night. Then, so. <laughs> well, no, that is that is an, no. The reality is, humble Clay, you have four bearded men present here. 
Okay, there are four of us that are, have beards. Just some of us don't let it grow as long. That's that's right. I still have one. It's that's a right. Five o'clock shadow. It, it comes out it like ten a.m. I I shave at eight and it's out by nine. So you know, yeah, that's uh, right. The Jewish beard grows a little faster than even the Italian beard. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a, <laughs> so. Well, thank you for being on, Andrew. Enjoy your kids tonight. Yep. Thanks, guys. Bye. Don't shut us off. Nope. <laughs> so okay. My wife says if I shave my beard, I lose ten years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Aaron Pester and Stogner just shaved his beard. I don't even recognize him. It's on. Go on Facebook and yeah. go see him after the show. Of course, I'm have to check it out. And it, it's crazy. I thought he shaved his head when he showed the pictures of all the hair in his hand. No, he shaved his beard. So uh, okay. So let's get back to the show. And, and I see somebody in the background. JCBDE. So whoever you are, we, I don't allow people into the show unless I know who you are and kind of what you want to ask. So if you go to the private chat, um, go ahead and put your question in, and um, and I'm happy to to bring in at that point. But so Joseph Bankard is is the professor who has the rainbow stickers on his door. Yeah, well, and he, he doesn't anymore. He removed it. Sometime. He removed it. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad he finally removed it. Yeah, there's still another professor in the English department, although she actually left for Treasure Valley Community College. But she still had a – and hers was a, like the new transgender, like the rainbow, but with the little triangle on the side. Uh, okay. You know, so. Yeah. So, so extra special stickers. Yeah. Um, so, so, so Bankard, who's a professor in your school, who you've had interactions with regarding homosexuality, is the one who wrote this article that is posted on BioLogos, yeah. and it's it's entitled "Substitutionary Atonement and Evolution." His introduction says, "Growing up in a Christian home, I never questioned the validity of substitutionary atonement. I was raised to believe that humans were sinful and God was holy." Because of sin, God could not be in a right relationship with creation. As a solution, Jesus played the role of mediator between humanity and God. Jesus served as a perfect sacrifice for human sin. His blood covers our iniquities, and because of his death, humans can be forgiven. So Amen. Far, right? I like that. So this far, is, so good. This is good, good biblical doctrine. This is actually what the Bible teaches like over and over and over again. Um, the problem is, is that after that, it goes downhill because he – he doesn't understand how this could be a good biblical doctrine. And, uh, and so what he ends up talking about as potential problems is that he says, from my perspective, now, again, this is a professor of theology. From my yeah. perspective. Yeah, well, he's, he's a professor of philosophy, but he's, sorry, within philosophy. The, he's, he's within the College of Theology. College of Theology, the professor of yeah. philosophy, yeah. gotcha. Yeah. Substitutionary atonement creates two potential problems for Christian theology. It seems that if substitutionary atonement is true, then God is either severely limited in power or unnecessarily cruel. If the only way God can forgive or reconcile is through blood and sacrifice, then God's power is limited. Why is sacrifice the only way God can forgive? If God is all-powerful, then there should be a number of ways to reestablish right relationship with humanity. If God can't forgive without blood and sacrifice, then God is limited in power. On the other hand, if God can forgive humanity in many ways and simply chooses to use his blood as God's means of forgiveness, then God seems unnecessarily cruel. Why would God torture? Why, why would God will the torture, humiliation, and death of his son if there were other ways to redeem humanity? Um, then he goes on to deny the fall as a historical event. Yeah. Yep. Um, he, he, he. And and one, one, of, says one of the reasons he gives, by the way, is like, uh, it's probably like, where did Cain get his wife? I think I, I'm like, 
when I was 12, I'm pretty sure I could have answered that, but all right. Uh, if, they think yeah, it's yeah. Pretty, if you think it's a persuasive reason, go ahead. All right. Oh yeah. He, no, you're right. He talks about the, the, the issue of Cain and Abel. Um, <laughs> yeah. He talks about uh, tired old arguments. Does a day Yom in the beginning of Genesis actually refer to a 24 year old time period? Uh, Josiah is writing a book that I'm going to help him with real soon. on going through the Hebrew on this stuff. I'm really excited because Joseph, because he's he's a really good scholar on on, uh, on the Hebrews, so I'm really excited for Josiah's well, well, I'll, also, coming up. Also, yeah, also, mm-hmm. I mean, he which that is, some of some of the some of the red herring with Doctor Bankard because he just denies at least Adam and Eve were the sole progenitors of the human race. So even talking about the meaning of day, you have to move even the more fundamental, like were they actually the you know, uh, we, we, you know, like so he just. I think well, I don't think he necessarily intends to be like the red herrings, but like that's fundamentally, I don't think that's why he's rejecting it. Primarily, I think it's because of a certain reading of of, of science and then evaluating that or placing it above the authority of scripture. And so that that's a fundamental problem I have. Not not uh, he has not not so much. Well, what does this word mean? Because uh, that's a you might have bad eggs of Jesus, but you can still value the authority of scripture. But he's already move beyond that so it's really not even uh, relevant to the point yeah that's right and and he puts a second critique in here that says um his second critique is in the realm of science in my estimation substitutionary atonement does not fit well with a theory of evolution no kidding that's the whole point is that the gospel is so okay let, let me let me do a quick teaching here um the gospel that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This gospel, I, I, I asked this to numerous numerous pastors and, and, and other Christians who, who don't understand a biblical creation or why it's necessary. And I say, why did Jesus have to die? Why was that the chosen punishment for Christ? And the reason is because of the literal Adam and Eve, the literal six-day creation about 6,000 years ago, the literal um, the literal command that Adam was given by God to not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was a immediate spiritual promise of future physical death. Jesus paid the penalty that was given from the very beginning in Genesis. That was the penalty for sin. Jesus had to satisfy the father's wrath and, and take that penalty ultimately in death in order to pay the penalty in full. I mean, th- this is basic Christian doctrine that we are, that we're reading about, which is why I go around the country teaching against evolution and, uh, and talking about how it, while somebody can be saved and believe in evolution, it's, it is a, it is a heretical doctrine that undermines the gospel message very yeah, clearly. it's kind of acid. I mean, it also, and the critique you'll see, like even like in some Nazarene theologians of the last century, like their systematic theologies. Like uh, my my honor's thesis was on the net. Uh, it's it's a narrow focus. It's on the doctrine of vicarious satisfaction in Nazarene theology, which I define in my letter. Basically, in a sentence, it's just you, you can express it this way: um, since it was necessary, God willed the death of Christ. Uh, suffering and death of Christ as a means upon which he could justly pardon our sins. Um, and that's just in the, that's just a scriptural doctrine. I mean, not only in, but especially like Isaiah 53. And you have other passages, of course, as well, that teach either that, that in its entirety or you get it from the full counsel of God. It's there in the 
people try to make of this claim, oh, only Anselm was the first one to articulate it this way. I mean, he has a particular way of cashing it out, of course, but no, it, it goes well before him. And in particular, the context of uh, Bankert, as well as some of the other professors, Peterson and Clare's book on the atonement, at least uh, some of their critiques of, I'd say, a, a scriptural doctrine of the atonement, pretty bad, but they make the same sort of things, is they're like, well, as Wesleyans, we want to say this. And so one of my projects was I just look through as many systematic theologies from, uh, well, just Christians in general, but since I'm at Nazarene school, I look through Arminian or Wesleyan and Methodist ones. Wow, what, what, what for the last 400 years, what have they affirmed? Oh, this doctrine of vicarious satisfaction. What, what a surprise. Um, you know, and, and I would argue that it's also required by the Sixth Article of Faith of the Church of the Nazarene. Um, of course, I don't know if they would dis- I mean, I, I assume they would disagree with that, although I, I, it just doesn't fit with what uh, the Nazarene article requires. But uh, it, it's, it, and fundamentally, the problem has been identified as it's a, it's a low view of sin and of God's holiness. But you, you know, you notice that you quoted from Bankert how he how he phrases as well: God is limited in power, as if God's justice, both in terms of like retributive justice, but also like the just administration of the universe, are not like part of God's perfections or something. It's it's a kind of diminuti- a, a diminishing of the holiness of God's holy love or his uh, holy justice. It's uh, and, and so he, he creates this paradox which never bothered anyone else uh, in church history of, yes, the cross displays God's love, his justice, and wisdom and power all in one. Like, why would you want to... But no, it, it either it limits God's power or God's cruel or something, which is... Yeah, do you want to define that, Josiah? Or, or Sean, do you want to define... Um, what is, to tell the viewers what vicarious satisfaction means. Yeah, so it has to do with the idea that um, that merely to forgive upon even just repentance would be unjust of God. You have the scriptural teaching in Romans that God might be just and the justifier of the ungodly. Because if you recall in Proverbs, it says, among those the Lord hates is those justify the ungodly. So God's doing this. His justice has to be maintained intact. Um, and so in the scriptures, it's Christ becomes a propitiation. He He basically bears what is due to us or an equivalent anyway uh so that we don't we that we are pardoned we have the remission of sins because we're united to christ he becomes our substitute and proxy so that uh, the, the 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 just demands of god god's wrath which is to us liability to penalty is removed um and it's not as you'll see Bankard and others caricature it as, what, did God not love us before he killed Jesus? You know, like, well, no, no, the claim has never been that. It's God, because his love, wishing to bestow distinguished blessings upon us, but seeing sin and death as an obstacle had to provide atonement in that he did freely in Christ Jesus so that he might be just and the justifier. So it's, it's this Christ takes our place is a representative and God's just claims are satisfied so that he can freely pardon and restore us to fellowship and, and all the rest that goes with salvation. Yeah. Um, Amen to that. So I'm, I'm going to bring uh, another guest on. And uh, uh, this this guest was, has identified himself in the past as a chicken man, has recently identified himself as 
as Atomic Apologetics, and now he identifies himself as X Wesleyan. Uh, let's bring on one of our friends, John. How are you doing tonight? I really miss the chickens. Isn't it nice enough for you to put the chickens back on air again? I, the sad thing is, is I, I work uh, now on the nights that you guys do your show. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm not able to, like, you know, show the chickens outside right now. So, you know, if you want to do a special show or something on an off night, like maybe a, you know, a, a, a Friday or a Saturday night, uh, that would be nice. I can probably show you the chickens there. But uh, right now they're they're at home. So, Okay. Well, Andrew doesn't know this yet, but we're going to be doing a special show coming over on a Sunday night with, uh, with Kevin Yant. So, um, so, nice. so if you, are you a home on Sundays? No. Oh Actually, boy. Yeah. I'm going to have to no. find another special guest then for a different night of the week. Okay. <laughs> so, so you, you had a question you told me about in the private chat. Andrew knows these things. Don't think Andrew doesn't, he's not always behind the scenes listening in whenever you might think he's not. I'll just sip on my Waterloo again. <laughs> so, okay. So John, you had a, you had a thought or a question. Yeah, well, I wanted to, uh, to address this situation with, with the Wesleyan church because um, I grew up in a Wesleyan church, uh, you know, from, from a very young age, all the way up until like probably like um, in my early twenties. And uh, I'm 51 now. And I'll, I'll tell you right now, this problem with, with liberalism and just these really bad theologies in within the Wesleyan church, it goes back. I mean, it's, it just keeps going back way back when, even when I was around, um, you know, but going through that, I didn't really realize uh, what the problems were uh, at that time because I was just surrounded in my little bubble. Um, and so uh, it wasn't until much later on where, you know, when getting involved with like the reformed versions of, of churches and 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 learning more about uh, real biblical studies and 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 solid um, exegesis, it it was it wasn't until then I realized that you know the Wesleyan Church has just been uh, a hindrance when it comes to uh, teaching strong biblical values and uh you know just today i was looking on my, on my facebook and i saw a friend of my, a friend that i used to know way back in high school and she grew up in the the church with me uh in the wesleyan church and i'm looking at uh her profile pic and sure enough you know there's like this black lives matter there's you know gay pride and you know all this stuff and then i was just thinking Man, it's like now do I think about it, all my friends that I had back in the Wesleyan Church, they're all liberals now. They're just absolutely running rampant. Um, hey, and to be the, fair, that, yeah. uh, the, I guess my, 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 my point is, is that the problem goes back. It's not just, you know, this past five or ten years. This goes back, you know, for many, many, many decades and we and to be fair, we see this in a number yeah. of denominations. I mean, obviously, the Episcopals went this route many yeah. years earlier. Methodists um, have gone this route for a long time. Although, you know, this looks like the split's finally happening between yeah, the, the Global Methodist the, Church and the United yeah, Methodist Church. Finally, legally operative, the GMC is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so thank 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 God for that. Um, SBC has been dealing with this stuff in the background for the last ten years. Has really come to light in the last four or so. You know, so we're we just see this everywhere, which is 
again, one of the big reasons why I wanted Sean on is because I'm like, we need people, young people who are going to stand up for truth. It's, we need this, that we need this out there. And, um, so, okay, Sean, I, I, I I'm going to continue to work through some of this stuff. And John, if you want to stay on, stay on and, and, uh, keep giving more of your, your feedback on this. So you did tell me when we talked, Sean, that, uh, that as you have, you approached professors, you approached the dean, um, approached others, and and they seemed to be very squishy in how they responded to you. They they were not direct. Well, to his credit, Doctor Bankard at least is pretty usually pretty clear about what he believes. So I'll give that to at least. Okay, so he he's he's clear about his liberal beliefs. But, but yeah, but at least some of them you indicated, like with Doctor Peterson, the way he'll frame things as. I think there's a scripture that it can be used to support that. Like, well, what, what, what do you believe? Because you said that about other things you don't believe. So, like, why don't you just answer this? You know, it, it, so a lot of them are been squishy. Some just never respond either because uh, they're busy or they just whatever. I don't know why. Um, but, yeah, so I, I, over the, particularly over the course of in sophomore, junior year, um, especially, and, and just even just before I sent the letter out uh, to my pastor and from there uh, to others, try to interact with uh, I think the majority of the professors in the College of Theology besides in class comments and other things like that I've tried to do so yeah yeah so I mean but you you've tried addressing and and so you know I I waited as I said earlier in the in the show I waited until you know to reach out to you today to get some phone numbers and to to call the dean and just to have a chat with him and with the hopes of hey if you guys want to come on the show, maybe not tonight, but at some point in the future, and 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 let's work through some of this stuff because it'd be really helpful for for these guys to be on a recorded video saying what they believe or saying what they don't believe or whatever. I mean, but the but the point of the interviewer is to ask very specific questions. So today, um, I, I did call Richard, and he called me back about four hours later. Again, the acting dean of the College of Theology and Christian Ministries at NNU. And he's a professor of New Testament theology, from what he told me anyway. Um, which, by the way, which is what, according to what another professor, Dr. Kibb, said, he and the Old Testament professor would not wholeheartedly agree that uh, Leviticus and Romans condemns homosexual practices in a gay marriage. I'll just keep that in mind. That's according one of the own, another College of Theology professor. I think that's been borne out in my conversation with him, by the way. But that's, I uh, just wanted to connect. Yeah, that. you know, and I could tell that because. When he, when he's, he basically was like, well, so what do you want? And I said, well, you know, as I left on the voicemail, you have a student and, and actually a number of students who have been coming out. And and I said, I've talked to a number of them, all, none of them want their names um, public because of retribution. There's only one that, uh, that has come out with a letter and and has put his name out there publicly um, to be able to talk about, about what's going on here. And so I asked him very specific questions. And so I, I said, he, there's some things I'm trying to get clear. You know, I'm, I've, I've done the research on, on other things I've brought up onto the show. I'm very thorough in my research. I, I don't leave stones uncovered. And so I wanted you to have an opportunity to be able to speak on behalf of, of the college as to what's going on with what's being taught by professors here. And so I, I asked him very clearly then, I said, okay, what is the official stance of the church? And, and then I corrected myself to the, to the um, school, yeah. even though you guys are 
tied to the church closely. What is the official position on homosexuality? Like, what do you say is the official position? And he, he wouldn't answer me. And I, I, so I, I asked again and again uh, and again. And he says, well, you know, we need to define terms in order to talk about what you want to talk about. I said, okay, homosexuality. Like, it's in the Bible. It's, and I quoted in Leviticus, and I, you know, that it's, it's an abominable sin. I quoted in Romans that it is, that it is doing what's unnatural. Like, you want to talk about science? Let's talk about science, right? Um, it's unnatural. So we, we see it there. And he, he still refused to answer. He says, well, we still need to define terms. I said, okay, how, how do you want to define terms? And he said, okay, well, he goes, are we talking about the act or the orientation? I'm like, oh, oh, here we go. I know where this is going. I go, let I go. Let's start with with the act. He goes, let's start with orientation. <laughs> orientation is not a sin. And but then he then I and then he stopped and I said, okay. But is assenting to the orientation in is assenting to it wrong? I, this this is just sophistry trying to get around. Oh yeah, it is. And and then I kept asking him the question over. I said, is the activity sinful? Is the activity sinful? And then finally he said, okay, well, the activity is sinful. Oh, good. I go, okay. I, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I, and then I said, now let's go back to this orientation issue. And, and uh, I said, what do you mean now by orientation is not a sin? I said, is it, is it, if somebody has a proclivity to it, is it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say born with, cause I don't believe genetically people are yeah. born with homosexual behavior. So I said, is, is this something that is, is what, what exactly is it? He wouldn't answer it. And then he said, this is an essential, any, this is not essential anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he kind of has to say that since we have that Dr. Bankert, who I mentioned earlier, he, Dr. Bankert mentioned over the last several months, uh, he's Dr. Bankert's also a method, a United Methodist pastor in Collister. Uh, I listened to like 200 of his sermons, 200 of his sermons, and several of them deal with these things more or less explicitly. Uh, and in one of them, uh, he, he mentions, and I've heard from others of students who come out as gay to this uh, professor in particular, and uh, who he just affirms in that view. And this is a tenured professor who these issues have been known. I mean, he, that like he, this same professor wrote that biologos essay, and from what I've been told by other professors, that is what. Uh, they, these these are probably other issues that played into it as well, but it hindered his being tenure under the previous president. So, like they know more or less pretty well what they, what they talk about. So, I mean, if he if he had to say, yeah, it is an essential issue, well, then what are you going to do about the department you're in and chair of? Uh, that, that's a touch a sticking point. Yeah, that's uh, right. And so what he kept going back to is he said, look, it's not in our articles of faith. He goes, it's not addressed. And I said, oh, hold on a second. It's Your addressed. Articles it. of faith address, it says, it talks about the inerrancy of scripture. And, and so it points back to the scriptures. I mean, even if you're, you're look, I mean, let's admit, the, the articles of faith is very, very, very weak. I mean, it's worse yeah. than Baptist faith and message. The, the, fourth, the fourth article of faith on the authority of scripture should be revised to be stronger, or at least explicitly make that point. I agree. Um, but, it, but it is in the code of Christian conduct, which is in the manual and which is binding. Uh, on, least clergy, that's right. So it's yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually, I remember some of these issues. Uh, my freshman year kind of connected to some of the things I mentioned with respect to another professor. The the comments about uh, 
Sodom and Gomorrah has nothing to do with homosexuality. And maybe Paul's advice. Uh, I actually wrote a brief little uh, tract of my own. Uh, I think it's called I'm Thinking About Homosexuality, and I kind of go through these things. Um, so like, if you think that the homosexual practices are sinful, well, then naturally the relationships in which they're like an essential, integral part, like gay marriage, are also sinful. And the, orient- or the desire toward them um, and this would vary maybe on traditions. Uh, like if you if you like you're uh, reformed or Lutheran, you'll probably will say that concupiscence is sinful. So you'll probably say that's sinful, properly speaking. But at least it's at least morally or non morally wrong. Like you, you shouldn't have a desire to for the sinful thing itself. Like you know, uh, you can probably parse it out. You know, but my own impression. I don't know if with Doctor. Uh, Thompson, although I do recall him saying in class toward the end of a session on Romans 1, it was New Testament letters was the class, well, perhaps perhaps this doesn't apply to, to the actions in a gay marriage. So, uh, I, I which raises two questions, like, well, how confidently would he affirm that homosexual practice is sinful? Uh, he already evidently doesn't think it's essential. And secondly, when he means uh, like the homosexual practices, does he mean what happens in a gay marriage? You, you, you have all... They like to define terms certain ways. So that's a an important point to mention, but but more fundamentally, um, oh wait, where was I going with this? Uh, I'm jogging my mind. Uh, well, yeah. I, I, I want to do that. Maybe, uh, but uh, in any case, so you you do have this. Uh, at least with him, there's a squishiness. With some of them, they'll go out in class, are in social media, are in sermons and published works. And make it pretty clear. I mean, one of the former professors here, Tom Ward, who unfortunately is still an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene in this district, like he's definitely, he's, he's, he reads blog, pro LGBT. Uh, he, he's Facebook posts of him uh, just like celebrating, like with, well, I don't know what church, but like they have rainbow banners and so forth. So it's like, hmm, this seems like a noxious. Oh, I know what I was going with earlier with that. So you have like these you quibbles about words, but you see this uh, with, I think, Presbyterians. They have the Revoice Conference. Nazarenes have something called Love Wins, which unfortunately Nazarene Theological Seminary, a different school, partnered with in some fashion, who will say stuff like, oh, yeah, yeah, homosexual practice, that's that's sinful. Yeah, but but, but it's good to celebrate this identity. Uh, you know, that's, that's their inconsistent position. X is bad. But identifying with X is not bad, which, I mean, at best, that's just highly imprudent. Uh, not, if you don't avoid the appearance of impropriety, you are clearly at the, at the best. You're a near occasion of sin. And secondly, for these organizations like the Revoice Conference or Love Wins and, and whatever other individuals and groups there are afflicting other churches, it's just a front just to soften. So they say, they say enough to, you know, so people who aren't too attentive are like, oh, well, you know, whatever the problems are, they'll still say homosexual homosexual marriage is bad or whatever, and uh, we'll move along. But it's just a, a front to soften people and to weaken uh, institutions and churches' positions. Uh, that's my impression of that kind of uh, quibbling about orientation, uh, you know. Because it's, it's usually not framed in terms of like, well, in this our tradition, we don't think concupiscence is sinful per se, which my understanding of the Nazarene church is it's one of the unconditional benefits of the cross is that that is unilaterally part. Now, I, I have to read Wiley again, but so there's different traditions, but they don't frame it in that terms. They frame it in orientation. They don't talk about this for other sins, which is, I, I, don't, I don't see a lot of people, you know, trying to defend 
same thing with like you know uh, those who identify like, uh, I identify as gay, but I think we should be celibate. Oh, that's good. That's fine. That's not. There's no problem. Nothing to worry about there. But you don't see a lot of people doing that for like the virtuous pedophiles or something, which isn't just, you know, uh, like as you recognize, well, yep. why would, wouldn't you want to a not identify with this sin and to avoid association with this so-called community? Like it, it you know. So this, frankly, it reminds me of a certain passage of scripture. Uh, I, I in one of the historical books about a certain clan or the people within it. You know, they 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 knew the times and what Israel should do. And I get a sense that in a lot of churches and, and institutions, there's people who don't know the time and what the church should do. Um, yeah, but it's it, it, it's 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 like somebody saying, "Well, you know, the act of adultery is sinful, but I can lust all day and I can think about you know sleeping around all day long as long as I don't act out on it. It's it's okay." Yeah, well, I mean, at that point, you're at least assenting to it internally, which, so at that point, it's no longer just a desire orientation. You clearly assent to it. Um, right. And, you know, so it's, it's problematic. Um, one thing, I, I don't know, I wonder if he mentioned this in his conversation. They, they love mentioning this to people who ask about it. Or, and they'll even say it to me, too, is you've taken things out of context. Um, well, he didn't accuse me of that, but he oh, accused well, you of that well, in the of phone course. call. That you're taking the, and that, but that's why I was yeah. asking him these specific questions. I said, how is he taking things out of context? And when I was asking specific questions is when he was refusing to answer. They've never actually uh, bothered to point out any factual mistakes in my letter. Um, the, re- the reason I think so fundamentally is because I think I've reported everything accurately. But even if, uh, uh, as I think is unlikely, if there are one or two factual mistakes, I was maybe slightly misrepresented this professor or something, uh, which isn't to say I did so sloppily or without due diligence, to point it out would be like the exception that proves the rule. It's like, well, actually, on page five of the letter, you say that this professor said this, but actually, here's the professor saying something opposite. Okay, well, what about the first four pages in the last 21 or whatever, you know? So, um, it, it, and that's one thing I, I, I find interesting, too. Like, I, like, here's an example with Dr. Banker, who, uh, because he is more, at least, honest about what he believes. Uh, I mean, he'll still say in his curriculum vitae that he's in full accordance with the Articles of Faith of the Church of Nazarene. But, I mean, well, not exactly. It, not exactly, that's not the case. But, like, he's, there's a news article on him line, uh, online when back in 2009 the United Methodist Church, uh, their General Assembly or General Conference, officially, like, reaffirmed what their position is on, like, no practicing gay clergy, no blessing same-sex unions and so forth. Um, which, you know, I mean, their book of discipline already prevents a lot of things, but you still have a practicing lesbian as a bishop. So, you know, again, it's, you need, people actually care about these things. But in response to that, he says, this is pretty much the entire quotation. You can find the article online if you want to, but it's, I'm disappointed with the UMC's vote. At Collister UMC, we work hard to welcome and love everyone. Of course, they equate welcoming and loving with affirming the, in the sin and so forth, which is just a nice rhetorical switch, but not really truthful. The UMC vote will not change how we do business. So the UMC vote, which says no gay, practicing gay clergy and no blessing same-sex unions, will not change how we do business. We will continue to welcome and integrate all interested persons into our church family. Um, and then he has a sermon, uh, well, several sermons he mentions this. I type excerpts from some of them, but one of them I believe I typed in its entirety, or at least will eventually get around to. And he just describes his position. Uh, in the in the exact quotation, he's describing the position of people who uh, uh, 
are opposed to that resolution, but then he later identifies it as his position in his uh, sermon, but is um, that the United Methodist Church be inclusive of gay and lesbian individuals fully, meaning that not all homosexual activity is sinful, that homosexuals can be in a loving relationship that is not sinful, and that therefore they should be allowed to be ordained in church leadership, elected to bishop, and whatnot. Um, so, I mean... I don't know if that's out of context. Uh, if that's not, if that's out of context, I really don't know what context. I, I almost think by out of context, I mean you told other people what we didn't want to hear. The context being the people we want to tell, not you know. But um, yeah. So it, and that just, ask you. Yeah. So it's this. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, something I want to ask you is, I'd like to. <clears throat> understand how you uh you got a ghost in the background that keeps calling the screen differently so i don't know what's going on there <laughs> i think it's andrew playing with it in the background uh it's okay i was just wondering how you came to this college were they pretending to be a, a conservative christian university i mean or were I, they pretty I, open about what they believed so um, part of it has to do with probably some of the story behind the present scope, although if you look on YouTube, I, there's some stuff I did about this. I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness, uh, then I eventually, le- I'm not a witness anymore, so I left that, um, uh, which, by the way, was useful preparation for this, while the consternation they've given me, nothing to having uh, you know half my family shun me. So compared to that, this has been easy. It's been, you know walk in the park. But uh, it Part of that do with um, how I came into attending a Nazarene church in Spokane Valley, um, and I can't remember all the particulars, but I was suggested to go uh, to NNU. I've heard I heard things about a few of the professors, which checked out, but not. I don't know so much necessarily about. Uh, I can't remember. In short, I can't remember all the details of how I ended up coming to NNU. What has to do with the fact that I. Uh, of the various churches I emailed in uh, Spokane Valley, the only one that actually responded substantially, well, two of them, one was a Catholic church, but that was only a live option insofar as you abstract the certain Roman dogmas that uh, just don't work. Uh, but and the other one was a Nazarene church, or particularly the youth pastor of that church, and so that's why I came into that orbit. And from there, this is uh, a Nazarene school. And uh, although, as I've indicated, uh, fairly quickly, I noticed cracks in some of the facade and actually uh, some foundations as well. Uh, but I don't know if that is clarifying into how I came to NNU. But I do believe they present, although I'm told by some uh, uh, former trustees and people like that, that they don't necessarily try to recruit among Nazarenes anymore. I mean, I think they recently created an office assistant to the president for congregational engagement, kind of like as a PR kind of thing, because even apart from my letter, I think some of the concerns have become more widely known, at least in Nazarene circles, and I would imagine probably in, you know, at least, you know, I mean, a lot of, I mean, most of the student body is Christian of some sort or other, and and some of them are, you know, pretty engaged and aware of how things go. So I think some of the uh, things have become more widely aware, but uh, to answer your question, I don't quite remember how I came to any in particular as opposed to some other school. Yeah. Cody Peoples, uh, Cody Peoples says uh, you're moving in the right direction from Jehovah's Witnesses to, to Nazarene. And to be fair, I mean, Sean and I have talked about theology. He's uh, he's a uh, he's he's more solid than what you would expect a Nazarene to be. So so I just, just well, want to put that out there as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, and there's a few things, at least in terms of. Uh, I, I do think there are some caricatures of like Nazarene theology, particularly the insistence on 
uh, entire sanctification or Christian perfection, which if you just parse it out and like, it, it sounds, my joke I make is among, well, some of it is too, is at least some of the Nazarenes and Nazarene professors here don't know other traditions so well. I mean, I've had a professor say that like the reformed understanding is sanctification is imputed righteousness. I'm like, no, that's just justification. Like, what do you, you know, a professor of church history, I don't know how you don't know that, but evidently that's the case. Um, but if you parse it out more accurately, it's just like, oh, judge strictly, we all deserve hell and we still fall short. So it's more of like Christians can avoid living in grave and gross sins. Oh, okay. Uh, and to move, be moved by the love of God and not love of self or sin. Oh, that sounds good. But uh, my joke is that sometimes Nazarenes like to think they invented holiness or something like that, you know, uh, which if you remove that kind of caricature, I think it's less objectionable. And I think it's uh, actually fits pretty well in with the mainstream. Uh, by mainstream, I don't mean like mainline churches, but uh, who have given up any idea of holiness whatsoever. But yeah, um, in terms of Nazarene uh, uh, articles of faith, uh, there are some distinctives um, which I, I don't think my letter necessarily touches upon. Um, and part of that is just because it's the, what I do focus on the four categories in my letter. Uh, do, do you want me to talk about that in more detail? But in any case, there are certain Nazarene distinctives that, like if you're a Baptist, and I have several friends who are Baptist, they'd be like, well, I don't agree with that anyway, which is, you know, you know we can really get, disagree on those points. But there's some things that Nazarenes, like all Christians, agree on, at least officially, and then there's a question of do you actually have as a member or clergy or as a, a teaching at an institution, do you actually keep to this? Oh, you don't. That's a problem. And that's what my letter is designed to address. Yeah, and, and, and that's kind of, I do want to go through your letter a lot more because so far we've touched on a lot of things. And um, we well, if, you want, if you want, I can sketch just the four categories, describe them, and give maybe a notable incident. We've already talked a lot about the LGBT stuff. but Yeah, and, and I'll probably ask you questions as I go through your letter, and then I'll let you answer those. But oh, okay. I think John um, Chicken Man has a question. Actually, I just want to let you guys know I got to get going. But uh, I was going to let him know, hey, thank you so much for all you're doing for the Nazarene Church and all and, and, and exposing all this. Um, stick around and we'll turn you into a Calvinist before you know it, all right? Well, I, yeah, I, you, I have some friends who are Baptists and like, oh, come to our church. And the Anglican, he's like, oh, come to my church, you know. Uh, but uh, we'll, see, we, you know, we'll see. I mean, I used to be Joel's witness, so stranger things are, have happened. <laughs> Never know. Yeah, okay. Well, you're a lot Appreciate more reformed than... Uh... That I think the average person even is, but uh, see, you, we'll see you, John. Yeah, Thanks for coming on. So, okay, Sean, oh, we've, we've come. This yeah. kind of connects to the authority. Uh, I do think there is a kind of artificial. Uh, this is in some Wesleyans generally, but also I've noticed that my schools will say things like inerrancy. Well, that's a Calvinist doctrine, and I'm like, well, that's so weird that the Calvinists got a time machine and they told Justin Martyr to say this, or something like that. So. <laughs> uh, I I think in the last, I don't know, 50 years, Wesleyan has, or even Arminian has gone under, well, I mean, historically, you had a bunch of the Dutch Arminians just became rationalists or Socinians or Unitarians, and, you know, so that's pretty bad. But then you have, like, in contemporary times, Wesleyan almost just means open theist, process theologian, squishy on biblical authority when it's like, yeah, I don't think Wesley would like that very much at all. Uh, it, it's artificial. Uh, I, I, maybe it's like an insecurity about identity. Wesleyans are like, well, if we agree with 
reformed people too much on things, we'll forget, we won't have an identity anymore. So we got to move away from the authority of scripture. Oh, that's, don't do that, please. <laughs> that's my take on that anyway. But yeah, so if you want to go through the letter or anything like that, that'd be Yeah. I mean, you know, so just, just to kind of finish up on the homosexuality piece, I mean, you did a, for anybody who wants to read the letter, I did send uh, Pastor Andrew the, the link to your Google Drive. So anybody can go download it and read what you, uh, what you wrote. I, I, I think, if nothing else, the, the thoroughness that you did in, in like investigative journalism type stuff is, is excellent here. But, uh, you know, so you you went through sermons of these professors. You you highlighted the areas. That, yeah, I work I work as a dishwasher, so I can just listen to hours of stuff every shift. So yeah, I got through about two hundred sermons pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it, and it's obvious because you you were able to to talk about each one, and you know, so you, you talked about Dr. Bankard um, in his sermon. Uh, on why the church divided over homosexuality, he makes it clear that he's pro LGBT. Yeah, in that sermon. Well, yeah, you know, you don't praise Karen Olivetto, that the practicing lesbian who was made a bishop in whatever jurisdiction, and then you had a Methodist church and not be pro LGBT. Uh, yeah, just psychologically, it just wouldn't fit. But then, yeah, he goes on explicitly says that's his perspective, and does so in many sermons. That that was back in uh, 2016. He said it, but over the last. Between then and now, he's probably about a dozen other sermons that more or less f- extensively deal with the issue. He makes pretty clear what his position is. Yeah, and, and in 2018, you, you write that he um, that you had a friend who took Dr. Bankard's Cornerstone course. Part of this class consisted of trips to Grace Episcopal Church. So yeah, field trips to an Episcopal church? Yeah, it, it, Cornerstone is kind of like a how-to college course with like community involvement. Like I took it with a different professor, and we went to like um, uh, a, a kind of like an abuse shelter. They, I guess, went to this Grace Episcopal Church, and among the things my friend said uh, was like that when they went to this church, whoever was the rector or whoever there, whoever gave them a guide or whatever, was like, "Well, here's how we we want to show grace to people in the LGBTQ community," and they're probably like the uh, I've never actually been to this church. Uh, no real intention to do so, but they're probably like the Congregational Church or the Evangelical Lutheran Church, which has little like gay little signs on their church door. So you know, why are you partnering with, or as a professor in a class with that church when you can go to I don't know, a Boise Rescue Mission or something? If you want to do some community engagement that doesn't I don't know undermine and confuse students, because this my my classmate ended up being confused like I don't know what what's wrong with them homosexuality after this and I was able to explain and fortunately unlike some of the other students who I've mentioned who came out as gay to this professor she did not have that issue herself because that could have been disastrous uh, with her as it has been with some students yeah and then you you chronicled another sermon where he said if your kid is gay buy a rainbow shirt and invite his boyfriend over for Thanksgiving yeah not not the ice I would go with um yeah, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. If you didn't have this chronicled, I, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. And yet, I mean, let's be really clear. Homosexuality is a sin. It's abominable sin. It's not a natural sin. It is a sin that will put you in hell for eternity, which, by the way, was kind of the beginning and the end of the conversation with the acting dean today on the phone. Um, he didn't he didn't want to talk about that a, a whole lot. But so, so you go through and you chronicle a number of things about, homosexuality and and I, and I will say this before we move on to your next point um is that you know when when 
the dean and I uh, were talking about homosexuality, I was quick to point out Genesis, one marriage between one man and one woman. And I said, by the way, um, God only made two genders, male and female, period. Yeah. To which he says, what do you mean? And, uh, and, 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 and challenged me. And I said, well, um, God made two genders, male and female. They were authorized to marry. He married them. And, and that is the basis of, of marriage is one man and one woman. And, and by the way, that there is only two genders, which are synonymous with biological sex. And then with those, there are gender roles that God gives um, to the two genders. And then I just kind of headed it off and I said, look, the, I know what you're going to say. It's what everyone else says. It's a, what about people born with, with different body parts? What about people born with some of the mutations, XXX, triple X syndrome, Kleinfelter syndrome, others? Yeah. I said, look, God's creation, he looked at it and said it was perfect in Genesis 131. The design of marriage was perfect. One man, one woman, and two genders. I mean, this is part of the perfect creation, and it's only because of the fall Genetic mutations are bad that some people are born in with Kleinfelder syndrome. And yeah. in the end, they will be restored with new bodies in, in heaven or hell, right? A, yeah. a body made for eternal life or one for eternal destruction. But they will have a real body that is normal. Yeah, I, I have a conversation. Uh, I, in my letter, there's a link to one of the supporting documents. Unfortunately, I accidentally deleted the recording, but I did type out a transcript of a conversation I had with a, another professor on. She raised the point, oh, there's 4% or however many she said, or people of intersex. It's less and than I, one. Oh, yeah. I, I, I had mentioned in that conversation, because um, I, I think actually Dr. Bankard made a similar claim a pre- year or two previously, and so that's why I wanted to follow up on this statistic, and I found a, a pretty good uh, survey or study that rather that said, well, you know, it depends what you mean, but like if you're talking about like what most clinicians would describe as intersex, like it's difficult to determine or there's not lack of function. It's like point zero. Zero two seven percent of people, or something like that, uh, and, and there's still the fundamental question of like, how does that detract from the norm? Like, in terms of like, if I'm born without eyes, well, clearly humans ought to have eyes. Like, that doesn't affect. It's funny you said that because I said the same thing. I said, what if somebody is born without arms and legs? I go, is that normal? <laughs> he, he was he was not happy with with that example. Well, I mean, um, it, probably because it's something like, "What are you saying? Intersex people are disabled in that way?" And like, well, in some extent, that they are disabled. They are. It's a or like it's same thing. Like, if you mentioned like pedophilia in terms of like homosexuality, I mean, there are some interesting connections there. But you know, I think pedophilia, like in terms of, is, is worse like to act upon and, and, and probably worse psychologically to live with. But if I when I compare it to terms like the whole like born that way argument, like if that's a good argument for homosexuality, if what if it works for a pedophilia, like. Oh, but then the objection is like, well, you thinking that homosexuals are as bad as pedophiles? It's like, well, no, the point of the comparison is you're the one who makes this argument. I'm pushing it to its extreme. I've reduced your – reduct you ad absurdum. You're just not being consistent. So I, I think that's Amen. a certain problem there. Um, yep. Well, maybe one thing yeah. before we leave this section, it might be useful to indicate some of the – I still think this doesn't really involve a lot of reading between the lines, but maybe more subtle ways some of the professors in class – like to kind of bring this up. Maybe yeah, I, I do want to go through that. I'm going to finish up the phone call part and then I'm going to have you run through that because oh, okay, I do yeah. want you to do that. Yeah, um, so the phone call ended when when I brought this part up about less than 1% and I said these were bad genetic mutations. And he he then said, well, you know, there's science that would 
that would go against what you just said. And I said, just to let you know, I am a dentist. I have nearly a full medical education in that dental degree, as well as a full dental degree. And I can, and, and I know full well about the genetics of this to which he then goes on to say, well, my wife is an, is an OBGYN nurse and she knows science too. And then click, <laughs> he literally <laughs> hung up on me. <laughs> so yeah, that was the end of the phone there. call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, and, that's, you know, and that of course raises questions of like, uh, as I mentioned earlier, when he says, or begrudgingly, it says, yeah, homosexual practices are moral. Not only is, well, how tentative is his affirmation of that in, intellectually, but I mean, in practice, I, given that he's the head of the department and currently acting dean, you can kind of get a sense of how little it matters to him, I think. But also, like, what does he even mean when he says that? Because, you know, you can verbally agree to the same thing, but it means something significantly different. Um, but just, just the last thing on this section, on, I mean, there's yeah. more in it, but I think this is illustrative of kind of the subtle ways professors will try to, you know, bring it up and we'll... Some of them are not so subtle. You'll see. I'll just read this paragraph really briefly. Yeah, um, please do. Um, well, I mean, it's part of two paragraphs. So in this is another professor, Doctor Smerick. Um, uh, in the, in the course, relativity and disaster, in that lived up to its name, by the way. Um, it's, it was the same thing as contemporary philosophy. Basically, she just wanted to give it a new name. She positively mentions homosexuality or transgenderism fairly frequently. That that really surprised me, by the way. I was kind of bold enough for. It's not hard to determine her probable motive in doing this. Namely, to convey the impression that homosexual practices and transgenderism are acceptable. Consider the following. This is probably the most subtle one, but I want to I include it um, to indicate like certain give tells. You know, like if you play poker, there's certain tells. She casually spoke of a certain author who said to her wife, "I wish I could own all the dogs and read all the books." Like she wanted, she was agreeing with that sentiment, but she said to her wife, "Like, hmm, they raise some questions." On two recent occasions, or two occasions, she condemned Dave Chappelle's recent comedy program for hate speech because of remarks, his remarks about transgenderism. Uh, it was unclear whether she makes a distinction between his insistence that men are men and women are women, or the particular manner in which he said this, or the jokes he made in connection to it. But in our current time, many would lump all these under hate speech. So just saying. Like, a man can't be a woman. That's hate speech, right? Many people say that. In doing so, she spoke of him dismissively as having become like a white Ohioan male. I mean, that, that was a really weird thing to say. I, That's one I of almost, the things I have highlighted. In this. Yeah, I, like, I, I, I am a white Ohioan I, I almost said to her, man, the only thing Dave Chappelle, I assume viewers know he's, he's a black man, but I, I almost said, well, the worst thing he could be is a white liberal professor. You know, but I, don't, I figured uh, I probably shouldn't say that. As if they were a bad thing. And this is probably the more grotesque one. Besides, I don't mention this kind of... She had chose a really weird documentary to show on Foucault. But, uh, Foucault. But, um, oh. Uh, and it says, At one time, she casually recommended that we watch a music video by a rapper who goes by the name Little Nas X. I'm, I don't know if you viewers know that. He's an interesting character. Unless, she said, two men making out would gross you out. So, I mean... You know, if she wanted to be pushed, come to shove, she could say, well, I didn't say LGBT stuff is fine. I mean, some of her social media activity where she commends um, Seattle Pacific University. There's there's a protest back in August. Seattle Pacific at least affirmed its position so far on, you know, homosexuality. Good on them. But there were a number of students advocating for, like, uh, uh, pro-LGBT or queer professors and so forth. Um, So, like... Yeah, you so you never actually said the words LGBT stuff is fine, but like 
this doesn't take a lot of discernment to know where your sympathies lie. And what's alarming, besides her teaching students in the College of Theology and conducting university-side interviews for ministerial standing, is she also, I think she's involved in some kind of like diversity, equity, inclusiveness stuff in the, in like administration here. So like, that's problematic for the future of the university. Um, and there's some other stuff I mentioned about her and other professors, but I give the sense of uh, how ubiquitous is among, at least among the College of Theology, and I, uh, I'm sure other departments have problems too. Although here it seems to come up more, like engineering, it probably won't come up nearly as much as in a course on ethics or on biblical interpretation. So that's and that's where uh, I have problems. But that gives you, I think, a good sense of the LGBT stuff, what it looks like, and how uh, like there's you can say out of context all you want, but I'm just gonna be. Uh, bemused by that i suppose until they actually bring some tangible claims to that front yeah and you have i mean there's eight pages on on just that part on, on homosexuality with within your letter and i'm sure you've got much more than than what's even in yeah, here well, well like i mentioned like i only alluded to it uh, as i mentioned here like they I, oh well, yeah she's better examples like i a pastor i know in spokane he mentions like they have pastors conferences and various thing events on campus he'll mention that some faculty like in the department of theology he couldn't remember who was like well his transgender isn't really that bad so i mean so it's pretty extensive um i mean well interestingly the dean of the college of theology when i asked him via email like when I, do I correctly represent the church's nazarene's position on homosexuality and transgenderism um, one of the things he said was, "Well, I don't. I don't think we could say transgender issues are sinful at this time." There's an email to that. It's like, did I, did I take that out of context? I mean, if so, just have them go on the record and say, "No, I, I, I actually think transgender uh, identity is sinful. It's psychologically harmful, spiritually ruinous." But of course, he won't say that. Uh, but if you say out of context, maybe some naive people will be like, well, as he said, she said, I don't really know what to make of it. And that's how, frankly, I think they've been able to kind of put a damper on any student complaints to pastors who are parents who will call them. It's, oh, you, you're a student misunderstood. I was only explaining another view or they took my words. at a, But no, it's part of why my letter is I document as most of my evidence is things on their published work, things I or other students have heard them say are emails like he's just. There you go. Unfortunately, uh, Idaho is a one-party consent state, so I was able to include those, but uh, <laughs> that was useful. I, yeah. but, so if, I don't know if you want to go on to a brief survey of some of the other material in the... Absolutely. So yeah. so your choice. What's next? Yeah, so I'll, I'll just briefly touch upon religious pluralism. Um, that's the heading here. I don't know if any of the professors, I don't think they would identify themselves as religious pluralists, but um, there, it, it, there's some problems in this front regardless. Um, and just to briefly describe, find like, I'm sure you guys and many of your audience will know, like there's exclusivist and then you have an inclusivist position and then you just have full-on religious pluralism. Um, and and religious pluralism meaning many ways to yeah, like like at least God, many. Least like, yeah, yeah. Basically, a lot of other religions are more or less equal. I mean, you could still be a religious pluralist and be like, yeah, I don't really think you'd be sacrificing kids. But basically, um, yeah, it, that's not good. Uh, and then there's other like I I think exclusivism is uh, is correct. Uh, I think uh, at least for 
you know, adult, whatever you want to say, age of reason or whatever, you need to have a, a, a explicit faith in Christ, um, orientate the will toward him, trust in Christ. Uh, as D.A. Carson says, faith is not some abstract principle, it's, it's Christ-centered. Um, and then there's another, there's other view which they don't go to, they go to a more extreme view, which is, but you can still say, well, I, Maybe you don't have to be a Christian, but you, you can't at least be – maybe general revelation with through grace can be salvific for some people. Uh, but they don't even say that. They'll go on, at least several of them, um, including in a sermon or another email course context, will be like, no, you can be saved in other religions. Which, you know, it's which if you find that attractive in the abstract when it comes to like, well – Okay, the Bible condemns idolatry. How you can say a Hindu can be saved? So you know that's already that that's well even beyond general revelation can be salvific because general revelation, as Paul teaches, show, people are self condemned for idolatry because they ought to know better. So that, that even a more extreme position. You'll have a and then you have a that position gone to even more extreme. You'll have a statement by here's a Dr. Bankard in one of his sermons which matches what I recall him saying in a, a class. Uh, well, I'll read. Yeah, I'll read it entirely. I suppose it's not too long. I think I'm here to spread the good news to people who don't have much hope. That sounds good so far. Who are lost and isolated and broken. And I want to say, you don't need to live like this. I got a community you can be a part of. But I have a hard time going to people who live wonderful lives, who filled with hope, have a passion and a purpose, but who don't happen to be Christian. I don't feel the need to convert them. I feel the need to join with them to link arms and make the world better for the kingdom of God. Um, well, well I mean, not only you you think other religions can be salvific, but apparently they're more or less on par with Christianity. That's like the that's pretty much you you, you might call it something else. That's I would argue virtually religious pluralism, and it matches with a a. a Again, out of context, no, I have – there's an essay that you can find online in the Wesley Theological Journal from a few years back by another professor, Dr. Gorman, where he articulates a very similar position to this, um, which seems to be echoed by other uh, faculty as well. In this one, this might be a weaker portion of the letter because – I'll maybe read the manual, but I don't know if there's a particular – uh, I tie this implicitly to the fourth article of faith on the scriptures reveal, or they inherently reveal all things necessary for our salvation. Um, and the reason I do so um, is, uh, how do I want to put it? I, there's no article of faith saying, oh, a, a person has to have conscious faith in Christ to be saved. Um, although I think that that is just kind of like the de facto position of the Church of the Nazarene, certainly of most people and pastors I've talked with. Um, but I still think it would be very alarming to Nazarenes and others who find this letter like, oh, what, what do they really think about the gospel uh, then? And one way it manifests itself in class, other than when Dr. Banker did say in class, yeah, in virtue ethics, he, he tends to, understandably, he tends to use a lot of illustrations and comments in his sermons in class. And I've had like five or six classes with him. Uh, he said the same about, oh, I don't think we need to convert virtuous Buddhist or something. Another way it manifests itself is with Dr. Riley, the Old Testament Hebrew professor, in an Eastern religious course, Eastern religious traditions course, one of the assignments was to observe other, like one or two, uh, like a Hindu service or whatever, which uh, I don't think it's intrinsically wrong. I don't think it's necessary, but well, whatever. But then he'll say, the way he phrased it, and I wrote this down right after the word, you can go to the Hare Krishna Center in Boise. They are very hospitable there. They'll even offer you to join them in worship and prepare a vegan meal afterward. Well, that's kind of weird. He's only summarizing what they'll do, understandably. Okay. The next week, when discussing the assignment again, uh, Dr. Riley said, Participate as much as you want, but don't violate your conscience. Um, uh, 
I don't think a Christian should be participating in any manner with pagan worship, but all right, that's a very weird thing to say. So it manifests itself in different ways. Um, some of it stems from, like, uh, with Dr. Smerick, a kind of relativism about truth itself. Um, she, uh, so if you don't think, if you think truth is relative, I mean, of course you're going to think the truth of the gospel is relative as well. It's just a particular application of that principle. Um, but this, the second, or the third, rather, the third section of the letter, I call it, I title it, The Doctrine of the Atonement and Related Matters. We've already talked briefly about um, the atonement, so I'll focus on the related matters. So before we even get to that, though, I mean, there's a couple of quotes I want to read about this pluralism, because you oh, okay, had... Yeah. I mean, Dr. Gorman, you said, wrote an essay in which he argued that people for of other religions can be saved in and by those religions. Yeah. Um, in class, Dr. Bankard, so we go back to Dr. Bankard, who said that, I don't think it makes sense to say that Gandhi is in hell. Yeah, and not even, not even, be, and keep in mind that uh, maybe, maybe Dr. Bankard doesn't know too much about Gandhi, but I mean, Gandhi knew of the scriptures and of the gospel, had Christian associates. And so that's why it's not even the, the claim of general revelation can be salvific, which I think is problematic enough, but it's, you don't even, like, even if you preach the gospel, you, like, you can be fine if you just be, so that's why, that's what's alarming. Um, I try to be very clear on this because I know a lot of the professors seem to conflate the claim of, well, maybe general revelation can be salvific with maybe you can just be a Hindu and practice that and be fine. <laughs> like, no, I, like they're, they're two distinct claims. One is worse than the other, and that's really problematic. And for some reason, they go with the worst of the two claims anyway, which is baffling yeah. to me. I, I call this, I've actually coined the term Ravi Zacharias syndrome. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> you know, people for years have asked me if I liked him as, a, as an apologist. And, and even before all the stuff came out in public, I always said, no, I didn't like him. And the reason why I didn't like him is because when he's asked the question, is Jesus the only way? The proper Christian response is, yes. yes. <laughs> um, let me check. This is really yes. easy, right? Like this, like this is a really easy test. And, and, and then if you want to explain the scriptures further to somebody, then please do so. But, but that's a really easy answer. And, you know, Robbie would go off in this five-minute soliloquy before he'd kind of getting around to answer something, but it wasn't really the answer to the question. And uh, and I feel like, the, like as, I, as I read through your religious pluralism section, I, I can't help but feel that that's where a lot of these professors are at. Yeah, they'll try to be uh, sophistical and say, like, well, no, Jesus' work is still the basis of salvation, but – which um, – it's just so weird that you have, like, the apostolic preaching in, in – Acts and like the letter to Hebrews, as well as I mean, in one of Paul's letters, you have I don't remember which one's on my head, like Hamanes and Alexander. They deny the resurrection happened, they're damned, or something like if that's the case. Well, then I'm hint like, or you'll have like another Nazarene academic, the late Al Truesdale, who Gorman's view very much resembles his. He wrote a book called With Chords of Love. I, I wrote some essays critical of it, um, but. His view is something like, how, and similar to Brian McLaren, the emergent church guy who Gorman also likes, is like, well, Buddhism will be saved. I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, uh, if it's, if Buddhism, if Buddhism is saved, it's just Christianity now. It's not Buddhism. You might have certain churches with different aesthetic on the outside, but like that's a certain you know cultural residue. But you're not going to have Buddhism anymore. But if you're a Buddhist, a good Buddhist 
can't be saved. You know, it doesn't. So you, but you have these nice sounding things. At least try to pay lip service to, like every knee will bow in the name of Jesus. Like, oh, Buddhism will be saved. So I'm really, yeah, I'm I'm Christians. Like, mm, that doesn't make a lot of sense there. Sorry about that, but your view's wrong. Um, or at least at least. Nazarenes and others who are affiliated with this school have a right to know what they're uh, getting into. That's my opinion. So, Absolutely. Jason Cave uh, says, Jesus plus anything is heresy. Amen to that. Uh, Justin, Pastor Justin Pierce, who uh, is too tired to come on, but at least he's commenting, says Mother <laughs> Teresa said the same thing. She would not seek to convert pagans. Yeah, it's, it, it's I mean... Granted, Mother Teresa had her own issues, but I mean, it's it's a wicked thing for Christians to to preach anything but Jesus alone. Yeah, I guess, I guess uh, and it also resembles and connects to is illustrative of the we can say the same things like this. Doctor Bankard and people like him will often say, "I've i I preach the good news," and they may it may overlap a good deal with what. We, we would affirm, but they mean something significantly different by it. But because they verbally affirm the same things, whether they're being in their own mind, they're knowingly duplicitous or not, it can be very treacherous. It's you can be caught unawares um, by oh no, he 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 affirms the Great Commission. Well, but he affirms the Great Commission that is somehow compatible with not feeling a need to convert so-called virtuous Buddhists. Like hmm. I think something's gone awry there. So that's part of why I discuss this section here. Yeah. Anything else in this section you want to discuss? No, no, we can, we can move on. Uh, uh, Pastor Justin Pierce is kindly pointing out uh, as, as Josiah did by paper, he didn't want to interrupt. Um, We are officially in Anthony time. So there we are again. Yeah. No, no, I'm good until eight 30 and myself, but that's good. Yeah, I'll just briefly summarize uh, the, the third and fourth sections and talk a, maybe a bit more explicitly about the response from the university anyway. Um, so the, the third section is the Doctrine of Atonement and Related Matters, um, which in terms of Articles of Faith of the Church Nazarene deals with the fifth, sixth, and sixteenth Articles of Faith. The fifth Article of Faith has to do with the origin of sin, uh, original sin, and so forth. The sixth Article of Faith has to do with the atonement. And the sixteenth Article of Faith, particularly the first section, has to do with, like, eternal judgment. And so I, I with terms of the atonement, I would not be surprised if all the professors end up denying uh, vicarious satisfaction, which is a very important element of the atonement. Like, yes, sin is a multifaceted problem in terms of death, um, bondage to Satan, um, in, uh, corruption, and, you know, and so forth like that. And so the cross and salvation also address those things. But also there is this, we also are under the just condemnation of God. The cross also has to address that. And that's one, that's an element they don't like. Um, and we've already talked about that briefly, so I won't really dwell upon it too much, except to say that in this, in the letter itself, I primarily focus, and this is true of the other two issues, is on the factual element, so what the professors say or deny. And I link to, or allude to as well, um, two white papers I wrote, one for this is particularly especially for Nazarenes, the fifth article of faith, where I argue, yes, if you just read the fifth article of faith, You'll see, surprisingly, wow, it refers, requires you from the historical Adam and Eve, uh, original sin, uh, original state of righteousness, which Bankard in his Biologos essay and some email correspondence with me denies, um, and that they're the sole progenitors of the human race and so forth, the historical fall. And that we've already defined, yeah, like, you know, and, and so I, and also my white paper I quote from various Nazarene theologians the last 90 years to show, like, yes, whatever, because I, 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 
since I've interacted with Peterson and others, I know kind of what they'll try to bring. They'll bring red herrings and be like, well, theistic evolution is compatible with the article. Now, uh, I would argue it isn't because, it, well, surprisingly, all the Nazarene theologians who wrote on it were like, theistic evolution, or they wouldn't even frame it that way, but evolution sucks. It's terrible. Uh, I do think it should, probably should be revised to head off that kind of concern, but um, even for the sake of argument, I granted that and said, but it still requires you to affirm Adam and Eve, historical persons, and so forth. And he never responds to that. He just wants to bring a red herring and act as if I'm saying things I'm not. Um, with terms of the uh, article on the atonement, I allude to another white paper as well as to an honors thesis I wrote where I argue uh, so the, the white paper, in my honor thesis, does this too as well. It exegetes the article, sixth article of faith, but then it just surveys the systematic theologians used by the Church of Nazarene from its inception until more recently. Um, so you have even Methodists like Samuel w- uh, Wakefield and John Miley on words say, look, they all affirm this doctrine. There is variation. Some of them don't like talking about imputation. Some of them don't like using the word punishment, but, I mean, in essence, they mean the same thing. Uh, but they all affirm God's justice has to be satisfied for him to pardon sin. The, among other things, and you'll see this in the article itself, it's the ground, the only ground of salvation, well, pardon is part of salvation, is the suffering of Christ. They deny that. They, you know, in other words, they'll deny what Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Um, but, but the essays and so forth are designed to make the theological gap um, between uh, saying, well, here's what the article says, here's what they're saying, here's why it's incompatible. And then with the uh, 16th article of faith, that has to do with uh, kind of incipient, qua- at least quasi-universalism that Dr. Bankard alluded to in class, as I recall, a friend of mine recalls, took the course later, very explicitly uh, in one of his sermons, um, although there might be a slight ambiguity there, and I note this in my essay because I'm going to be even-handed, as well as one of the professors said as well, uh, and the gist of it is something like it connects. It's it kind of an intersection of their open theism. God doesn't. The future isn't determinate, so God's knowledge of the future isn't. God continues to give provenient grace, the grace that enables salvation to the damned, and so forth. Like if you combine all these things together, like you, you, if not of logical necessity, but just of the trajectory of these claims, which some of the professors have made in class you would get universalism. Or you certainly wouldn't get what the article, 16th article of faith says, um, which says basically, which in essence says that you have to come to faith in this life or you're, you're not going to make it, basically. Mm-hmm. And so the, so the problem is there. The last section, in some ways, the, preview, the first three sections are in some way implicitly about biblical authority. Um, but this last section is specifically addressed to that. In some ways, it's kind of a catch-all um, where I talk about... Uh, our, here, the main focus will be like on a Marcion. There's other emphasis too, but on Marcionism, um, which uh, of course is well, Marcionism, strictly speaking, is that the God of the Old Testament is evil because he created matter and also look, he does evil stuff. Uh, I'm a, a pseudo Gnostic, whatever. But there's a kind of neo Marcionism, which is like the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He's not evil, but like the portraits of this God is wrong. And so the character, the, the main sticking point for them will be like, the invasion of Canaan, but they really mean the flood and other things like that. And here I point out some context where it comes up in class, comments of Professor Dr. Gorman made, Dr. Bankard as well, but as well as it, to make sure I show that I know their positions. Uh, I've two, two of Dr. Bankard's sermons deal with these at length, right? Uh, and then 
this also connects a bit to show that I is not taking them out of context on the atonement. Um, two professors, Dr. Uh, Peterson and Dr. Leclerc, the latter of whom is unfortunately on uh, the Articles of Faith Committee for the Church of Nazarene. They wrote a book on the atonement and, and some other things. Their thesis was interesting. How does the atonement speak to the sinned against or the cross speak against? So that could be great. That you could many good places you can go with that. They mostly avoid those and go to bad places instead, um, in my opinion. But I, in, one, in, in connection with this biblical authority thing, I quote uh, on page 118 of their manuscript, a friend of mine is in one of their classes I was not allowed to take, but send it to me. They just say, yeah, part of our objection is that God is not violent, because violence is necessarily wrong, it seems. I mean, they're, they're somewhat ambivalent on that point, but they do claim God is not violent. And you either have to say God is schizophrenic, because Jesus says, love your enemies, but God in the Old Testament does this, and also the Holy Spirit kills Ananias and Sapphira, all very problematic. So you either have to say this hermeneutic of love, which lets us get rid of the Old Testament and New Testament judgments, is true, or you have to say God is schizophrenic, which matches basically with what Bankard says in his one of his sermons, which is you either have to say, hold my position, which is none of these happened, or you have a God who looks very much like Satan. Now, the problem with when it comes to biblical authority, I think, is to be obvious, but to frame it in terms of the fourth article of faith of the Church of Nazarene is, how can Scripture inerrantly reveal uh, all things necessary for our salvation if it is so often and so egregiously wrong, as their position would state, about the doctrine of God, God's character and actions? How can you trust it at all, even if it says those nice things you like? And so implicitly, by holding this neo, neo-Marcionism, they completely deny the authority of Scripture. Um, and then there's the last section of this portion um, has to do with gendered language for God and so forth. Uh, the, the more moderate position is, on the, in terms of the university, is uh, they don't like saying God himself or him. They use God self, you know, or they just say God instead of using a pronoun. Um, for most argue which frankly in terms of some of them will say at least in some contexts she and so forth for God um, certainly they give toleration to students who do that um, which I find that very arrogant in terms of the scriptural and you know historical use like you just going against the scriptures and what Christians have always done that seems problematic but also in terms of uh, biblical authority it seems to suggest that scripture has been very unhelpful in this point and potentially damaging, so we need to move away from the scriptural practice. Uh, of course, they won't frame themselves as doing that because they're like, well, Jesus called himself a mother hen. Like, okay, but Jesus said that as a human being, as a man, so like, what's the... But, so, but the, ultimately, what they're doing is they're moving away from the scriptural, the scriptural commands to pray, our Father, and so forth, and approved examples because evidently they think scripture... Uh, under is unhelpful in these points. Well, that undermines scripture. How can it inherently reveal all things necessary for salvation if it's so harmful in these points? And so that's um, the essence of the biblical authority. So altogether, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm frankly, my, in my own opinion, it just seems that the religion, at least taught uh, by that, if you would follow everything the professors say, it seems to be a kind of another religion. A Christian-like religion has a lot of the external trappings, but it, in essence, it's severely different at several significant points. Yeah, we call those cults, of, like Jehovah's Witnesses yeah. and Mormons and <laughs> Roman Catholics and, and others. I, it's, I, I want to read one quote. I mean, in this section on biblical authority, 
I, I mean, there's there's a few whoppers in, in your entire letter that I had to read my wife it just in total disbelief. And this was probably the biggest one of them all. And there's, I mean, it was hard to rank them, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But, uh, this one says, you know, some are more or less strongly deprecate um, <laughs> the, masculine depre- terms for yeah. God or indicate that we can, with as much propriety, refer to God in the feminine. And then you go on to say, in spring 2022... Dr. LeClerc gave a lecture in Christian Theology 1 in which she strongly encouraged students to refrain from using masculine language, he or father for God. Four students in that course were able to relate to me what she stated, both the argument she gave for her admonition and the admonition itself. For instance, she said that since most child abusers are male and many people have abusive fathers, we should refrain from calling God Father, as doing so might trigger their PTSD. She also argued that since God in his divinity is not gendered, we should not call God he or Father. And then she talks about patriarchal society, and I'm like, this is, this, this is absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, well, I mean, it, and that's one of the things... Um uh, when I could touch really briefly upon like the university's response, uh, I wasn't allowed to enroll in any college of theology courses for this last uh, semester. Um, but and, and, and talk about that yeah. for a moment because yeah, I, mean, well, I will. But let me talk about the cost, and there was a yeah, cost to you here. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, let me just briefly talk about this yeah, uh, okay, their statement, then I'll go on to that. Um, so I, because I wanted to clarify with, I heard this that troubled me. So I basically said, well, we heard that several of the students joined me in this little project that write to her. We said, well, we heard X. Is this an accurate representation of what you said? Uh, our concerns are, here are our concerns. And I bring them up in the letter as well. What do you make of those? And her response was not to write to back to us. I didn't necessarily expect her to write, but instead she lambasted me and other students, some of whom weren't even affiliated with this, um, and so forth. In the next class period, evidently, she asked each student, did you tell? Did you tell? But the only relevant thing she said in that email to her class was, um, besides misquoting me, the letter shows truly bizarre logic. Now I take umbrage at the second one, but, I mean, I also don't think her statement is correct as far as misquoting her, but, I mean, part of the, even the, the purpose of the letter email was to get her to say like do you think this is inaccurate so like why would that be a fault when we're you know endeavoring yeah, to clarify? clarify your position yeah. right i mean that's but, what yeah. you've asked these professors yeah. to do this yeah and I include this all in a footnote i'd try to be yeah. even-handed but part of why i don't really think i have misquoted her or in other words why these four students uh one of whom came to me and others i know and just happened to talk with shortly the reason i don't think so they misrepresented her in this is one uh, fundamentally I've heard from four students independently that day or that if that within a few days of that lecture very in most part very detailed accounts that interlocked with each other so I don't really think there's a lot of misrepresentation and secondly other than fitting generally with what her position is it fits with what one she thinks she says in this book she and Peterson say on the book uh, it's more narrow in this book um, but it seems to fit very well with what she said in class which is and yet using father language in a book about victims of abuse would be to put it bluntly re-traumatizing for some who have suffered at the hands of fathers or father figures in their lives um, so basically and so basically da, 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 
Uh, to do so would betray the very essence of our subject matter, since so many of the abused and abandoned find male and male familial language can that's a typo on her part, but can be extremely problematic when applied to God. So whenever, unless they're quoting someone else in this book, they only refer to the Father as the first person and so forth. So it's, it fits with what uh, she said there. So if there is some imprecision, it's very slight, I think. But so in terms of response, there have been there were basically three phases of this. Um, one was shortly following the so um, on October eighth is when the general uh, sorry the district superintendents uh, three of them anyway met together and said we'd like to bring it to Peterson. Do you want to include your name on that? I'm like, well, one they'll know it's me anyway, and I'm stand by on my work. Go ahead. And with uh, Shortly after that, Peterson shares it with Dr. Thompson. I know this because six days later on October 14th, I have an interview for Ministerial Standing, which is a university side thing. It's not a denominational thing. I mean, it's related to that, but it accomplishes three purposes. One, it's a requirement for Christian ministry major. Uh, it's a thumbs up to district credentials boards. And third, it's a requirement for a scholarship. And this interview is usually no more than an hour. Sometimes it's less. Mine was about an hour and 45 minutes. The last hour of which was explicitly talking about this letter. And they were, I wrote, I didn't record it, unfortunately, but I rec- wrote down my recollection of it a few hours later. I, I think it's pretty accurate. But there was a lot of contempt and uh, disapproval in this. Um, that's when uh, Dr. Thompson told me I had engaged in blackmail. Uh, which maybe being a pedantic person, I thought to myself, well, if I'm doing something wrong, it's not blackmail. Because blackmail, you don't let the cat out of the bag until you get something. But, you know, I like to be precise. But in any case, there was a strong condemnation. I was presumptuous and arrogant. I think he was taken aback a little bit when I mentioned my pastor was the one who forwarded to the district superintendent. Because his whole point was I had no credentials to make these decisions for the denomination. And I'm like, what decisions have I made? I didn't decide bringing it to people's attention. So you, you know, so on. Yeah. You're telling what um, the Bible teaches. Yeah. yeah. And, and this yeah. Dr. Thompson is the same Dr. Thompson I spoke with today. And, and I, yes, before that, I was really would, hung up on, I was going to ask him why he called this blackmail. Well, I mean, uh, yeah. So basically blackmail gossip, uh, just briefly, basically I was denied ministerial sending. They say it had nothing to do with the letter, um, which I don't believe for several reasons. I appeal, I go through appeal process. The first level of appeal was definitely doomed to fail because I was appealing to two of the professors in the College of Theology who made the decision, one of whom at least knew about the letter because he's Dr. Peterson. But in any case, that, that goes through. Then, they, they, then, then on December 21st, they say, you can't enroll any of the College of Theology courses for, next, for the spring. And, and I would have wanted to for at least one of two reasons. One, uh, to complete it. Uh, religious studies, but I could also complete a philosophy uh, bachelor's, or to enroll in the courses I needed for a Christian ministry major if I could get that appealed through unofficial means. Uh, but in any case, he said um, he, the reason he gave was defamation. He said, I talked to the faculty chair, it was defamation. Uh, this letter you wrote, you know, it wasn't problematic, you had concerns, it was just the way you did it. I'm like, well, I don't really think that's uh, true, but he tied it to the letter. Now, which is interesting because it's like, hmm, if you have a smell detector, you're like, yeah, the letter also played a role in the first decision, which they say it didn't for whatever reason. Although when uh, Peterson wrote to the appeal committee, he says it would have been sufficient reason for us to do so. It's like, well, well, then why wasn't that part of the decision? It's a very odd, a lot of questions there. But I, I write to appeal to this, the dean of the college and to the vice president of academic affairs saying I'm going to appeal this decision to prevent my enrollment in courses. And neither of them respond uh, for like, well, actually, they don't ever respond until 
later. I eventually appeal right to the president of the university. He's on sabbatical for like two weeks or whatever. When he gets back, he responds and says, oh, my understanding, you have appealed two recent academic decisions. I'm like, no, I've only appealed one. What are you talking about? Uh, because for some reason they want to conflate the ministerial standing decision with being able to enroll in courses. And there's several problems with that. Uh, one, uh, it, it seems to implicate them in a lie, uh, to be honest. Uh, it seems to. It is, there's potentially ways they could try to work it out. But they say the ministerial standing decision had nothing to do with the letter. But then the university's position seems to be, uh, my understanding is, oh, uh, this was decided at the same time the ministerial standing decision was decided. Well, Peterson clearly says this is about the letter and defamation. Uh-oh, that's a problem. And there's other – at a certain point, they had to maintain that position because it was already several weeks into the semester. There was no way to undo it. But I was somewhat disappointed with this because I wanted to vindicate myself. I wasn't defaming them and also the claims I make. Um, to speculate a little bit, I, I wonder if perhaps the reason they had to not let me appeal this is if they did and they're like, no, Sean didn't defame anyone. That seems to at least strongly support, suggest that – uh, the claims were true. <laughs> Uh-oh. But in any case, and then the third level, which is actually a disciplinary action, is connected more recently uh, in connection with, the, for instance, the email I wrote to Dr. LeClaire, um, and a few of us had sent off to her. Uh, that apparently caused so much disruption in the class. All, like, well, okay, whatever. And that was a problem. And somehow my letter was also a problem as well. Um, it, it was kind of bogus, uh, but they did let me appeal that one. I think they were somewhat slow in following their policy in terms of letting me have a copy of the complaint, but whatever. Now I'm done with that. Um, there have been other actions. I know that some faculty in a faculty meeting have – their whole policy to others has been to say just lies out of context, defamation, evil act of violence. That's one thing that they've used for at least part of what I've done uh, and so forth. Um, very strange um, conduct uh, uh, I think uh, and maybe I was being naive originally I mean looking back I think I might have been or just projecting on to them what I would do if I was them in terms of like why well, I would want to defend myself or you know um, like respond to what's actually being said but no, they seem to be content mostly to just frame it in terms of either a confused student but really just malicious, I mean that's how Dr. Peterson framed it to an email to me. Malicious, defamatory, slanderous, uh, you know, they go on. Um, backstabber seems to be another friend. Uh, they don't actually use the term, but they've gone, you've gone behind our back, you've betrayed us. Yeah, the, the bottom line is, is they, they're borrowing from the liberal playbook. I mean, we see the liberal politicians doing this continuously. Um, I, I mean, the bottom line is, is that, is that they, they committed a crime against you. You know, you paid for a degree, you had every right to get a degree, and they denied you the, the degree that you were seeking um, for what they what they did. I mean, they've literally what they've claimed you've done, which is blackmail, serious libel. Um, they could just as easily be truly accused of those things. That they're oh. accusing you of. I mean, maybe not the blackmail so much that I know of, but the libel. Yeah, certainly. the blackmail wouldn't work. But the libel, yeah. certainly. And, and the backstabbing. And I mean, it's, yeah. it's really incredible. Well, to I mean, me. part of the reason they, they were slow in terms of giving me a copy of the complaint was they had a. To be fair, I wouldn't. I don't envy the university administrators like the vice president of academic affairs because you have an enraged college of theology. They, 
I'm pretty sure all of them to a per, to a to a person, if not at least most of them, uh, want to see wanted to see me expelled. I mean, when I, part of the disciplinary process at this university is two RDs, resident directors, will meet with you and so forth. And one of them mentioned to me, well, some of the people we talked to when they talked to theology faculty were like amazed, like, why are you still here? And I'm like, well, I'm only here because uh, I can't get a degree anywhere else because you have to, you know, that was my joke. But no, like, they were really keen on that, although I've, I would argue I've done nothing wrong against the student handbook, but certainly nothing that warrants the dismissal. But, so I wouldn't envy their position because they have to placate the College of Theology. I mean, I don't think they should be placating the College of Theology, but like, you can understand the impulse to do that, protect the organization. I, I'm glad I'm not in any kind of university administration, but uh, I am glad that they, at least to this extent, didn't bend to the pressure of the College of Theology. But I know, and some of it I think may have backfired on them, particularly like with one of the professors. Mm-hmm. He's made it public to the. Uh, I'll say it now. I guess it's not like immoral or illegal to do so, but in a, a, one of the faculty members did resign, um, mostly because the university did not discipline me enough i guess uh which probably included expelling in his mind but very ineffective and he for some reason sent it out to all of the faculty at this university which i mean some of them don't even have any idea anything's going on at all so that's a i think an unforced error on his part but i know that faculty have talked to me and other students and some of the students i i just saw an acquaintance of mine saying oh this professor was talking about this letter the professor wrote and it was like but I don't know. It's, a, it's just an odd mindset in terms of uh, bringing it up. But at every stage, one thing has been uh, fortuitous, uh, providential. At every stage of the appeal, I get to bring up like the, the appeal committee and my ministerial standing is here's the letter. I mean, they're faculty here, but I've talked with some who, like STEM professors and others, uh, who have like they don't know what goes on in the College of Theology. They're, they're whatever you know. There's other you know other departments here, so they don't know too much. They hear rumor here or there. And so this has been illuminating to some of them. And uh, even the vice president of student development, when this I appealed to her, she did not know what, at anything about my letter. And so I'm like, well, I'm going to submit this as part of the official record because it's germane. But also, like, get it go to her. I don't know if she's sympathetic to the concerns, but at every time I get to say, here's my letter. you know. So it's been uh, useful in that way. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, in some ways, uh, I think uh, – beneficial overall i mean it has been fortuitous that it, through god's grace and through providence i think he's brought me through this i mean uh in temperaments certain things don't bother me too much i mean i could only imagine if i worried about what faculty and students say about me that would probably be miserable but uh, i just don't care i guess <laughs> but uh you know so that, that's been a, i guess a brief synopsis of some of the things uh, that have gone on in terms of at nnu as well as the response to me um, I only hope that it hasn't had so chilling an effect. I mean, I know that even in my appeals, uh, some of the claims they made about me was like, oh, Sean's dangerous and threatening to students and so forth, um, or at least makes students feel unsafe and so forth. I'm like, well, here, here's a number of students who've had me in classes this semester and the previous ones, what they say. At least some of the ministry students did not want their names attached to that because they feared like reprisal, even just for like saying, hey, Sean's not a crazy guy, you know? Um, and I know that some other ministry students uh, and others, Nazarene or otherwise, who have concerns, you mentioned one who was here and who left, and I know of others, uh, similar experience. But those who stay here, um, they're very wary of what they say in class and to others. And so I, my concern is just it has a chilling, it won't have a chilling effect 
um, on students. And, I, and there are, I think, hopeful signs that that isn't the case, um, both among ministry and other students who are at the school and alumni. And I mean, the, the other, there have been other institutional effects um, uh, I've heard. I mean, because some of the pretty big donors have found out about my letter and are sympathetic to it. And so that might put pressure on the university. Because the, the aim here, ultimately, the ideal aim would be even have the faculty, whether they remain or not, they repent and to come to unity in truth. Um, but if that can't be achieved, it's to reform the university, uh, at least to curb the more egregious elements and to put to replace that with something positive. Um, so that, that, that's the hope. Um, there are less satisfactory ideals, which is just cutting ties with the university. I mean, that might, I mean, honestly, that's my guess of what will happen sooner or later. The university or the denomination, one of the two, will just be like, we're just going to, we're done with our association. I mean, that's happened with other schools. I mean, you know, back in the day, like Harvard and Yale used to be, you know, you know really actually good yeah. uh, Christian schools, but, you know, that isn't, you know. Yeah, so the Marxists got a hold of them. Well, I think it was probably before that, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, so there's been, uh, you know, the hope is always to see like, and one of the, in the meantime, it's like, well, if you're a pastor of a church, Nazarene or otherwise, in at least particularly in the area that sends, I mean, it's not just from the Northwest, I mean, but I think primarily from the Northwest that NNU draws its student population is to be aware of what's going there. And frankly, it might be ideal not if you're a parent or say, hey, uh, don't go to this school or at least if you are you need to be aware of what they're going to teach intellectually here's why it's wrong remain uh, in a good church fellowship with good christian friends that be that will get you through um i know that w- even we can call you the nazarene martin luther then uh <laughs> martin what, once Nazareth, he takes uh, his letter and pins it to the door then i'll, I'll try to do that yes um just, take a picture yeah. for us my last comment uh, uh maybe if you want to have anything after that that'd be good uh, if you want to have anything to say after that would be good is i know that of uh guy okay, i'll say it from this way i've been told by students who go to uh, or who have gone to a local evangelical methodist church so distinguish them from the united methodist church um a lot of the pastoral staff, I'm told, went through NNU, not exactly, they don't exactly see eye to eye with them, uh, but that if any student go or is like applies to or is accepted to NNU, they're like, hey, why don't you reconsider? Um, but if they do go through, I've told at least for a time, they've had uh, people like here, who have a class to kind of like inoculate you against some of the more obnoxious points they teach there. I don't know the exact content of the of that class. I, I considered asking uh, one of the pastors there, but I just it slipped my mind. But the reason they did that is because they had students in like the youth groups and so forth who come back like, yeah, I, I'm not a Christian anymore. Uh, and if that's even happened in classes, uh, like a student will say, I'm an atheist now because of this course. I don't think most students say that. I think most fortunately, I mean, it's it, for lack of a better way of saying it, I think most are uh, inconsistent. So they absorb these harmful teachings, which are destructive to loving God with whole soul, whole mind and whole heart. Uh, but they won't follow them to their conclusions or they'll remain inconsistent, which is, at least in their context, almost a blessing uh, for lack of a better way of putting it. But it's not rare to find students who come here. Uh, there's, a, there's a Lutheran guy, Jordan Cooper, has a brief – this is about Eastern Nazarene College probably 20 years ago, but he had a very good anecdote on that point of like in a Bible course, a professor does a survey. How many of you believe the authority of Scripture? All but two will say, yeah, I do. At the end of the course, this is probably a more extreme example, but at the end of the course, only two said so. 
So whether they're consciously trying to destroy faith or not, I think that is a very understandable outcome in many cases. Um, so that's all I have to say, I suppose, unless you have any comments or questions that might elicit anything else. Yeah, I mean, I, you gave us a, a wealth of, of information about what's going on at Northwest Nazarene University. And, and of course, you know, you already said what you hope to happen is that there is repentance and or reform that occurs um, at the at the university. I, I actually pray that that they do the right thing and give you the degrees that you should have gotten it, it, over there. You know, it's, it's, it is unbelievable that they, that they did this to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, oh, by the way, one thing I, one thing I think, I wonder if the college of theology faculty actually think this, but like, I'm not aware of me being driven by malice or anger. I mean, some of them like Dr. Bankhood, he and I got along really well. Like he's a very affable guy. I personally, on a personal level, like him a lot. Some of the professors I don't really know that well. Um, but like, I was never driven by like animus or like a vendetta. Like, oh, I gotta just get him because because other than teaching bad things, they've never wronged me like personally. So it's more of a oh, I don't like what's going on here. Someone needs to speak out. Why not me? But uh, yeah, so I, I, I hope there is some. Uh, yeah, of course. Of course, you would wish the other professors would have done this. You would wish the dean would do this. You would, you know, you would wish that it, it shouldn't have to come down to a student in school. Well, frankly, I mean, out it is it, it is troubling to me that I mean, a lot of these have been like, there have been attempts to reform the NEU with some good results. I mean, Doctor Thomas Ord, if anyone wants to look him up, was fired. That was good. Um, then they fired the university president who did that. Probably not as good, but. Uh, but it's alarming to me that you have high-ranking university officials or even church officials who either because they don't take an interest in, in terms of like time or I don't know, I don't know how it allows uh, to continue for so long. I mean, that's one thing I'll, I, you know, I mean, it's not like it has to be as it's, it's doesn't have to be that way. I mean, uh, I mean, there's maybe there's something, you know, you mentioned some cults. I mean, Maybe there is something learned from Jehovah's Witnesses. They would not let someone be a fake Jehovah's Witness. Now, that's good because, I mean, you shouldn't be a Jehovah's Witness uh, first place. But at least they do have care about terms of their doctrinal integrity. Why Why should Christians have less concern? Uh, I mean, you know, particularly on this essentials points, but even like, you know, in terms of like Baptists, like if I'm a Presbyterian, it's just dishonest for me to try to be a Baptist. That wouldn't make sense. That's dishonest, you know. But when it comes to like, yeah, I don't think the Bible even has authority. It's like, uh, I don't know, are you, that's very problematic, even worse than that. But they don't, university and other officials in the denomination have a lackluster response so far. That's my opinion anyway. Uh, I pray that that changes. I just don't know how you're a theology teacher and don't believe the Bible. I mean, that's just, it's yeah. mind blowing. Well, I mean, I don't want to apply this to any particular professor, but it does elicit a reminder of mine in terms of, uh, is it Titus? He says, you know, they, they think uh, godliness is a pursuit for material gain or something like that. Uh, I don't, the reason I hesitate to say that it applies to them is because I don't know what their own conscience, what they actually think. I, I think they might actually believe that you you can be a Christian and believe and do and, you know, regard the world in the way they do. I just think it's, uh, if I saw that they're deluded, like that is inimical to faith and true righteousness. And so I hope, I hope they repent. I mean, it'd be great. Everyone repents, reconciliation, the university restored. That's uh, my hope. Yeah. Amen to that. And, uh, and, you know, on that, I, I thank you for being on. We, I know you, you're even beyond what you were wanting to be on tonight. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I appreciate you being on. If you can hang out backstage for just a moment when we end the show, but um, 
But uh, Sean, thank you so much for for being on. Josiah, thank you for being on for moral support for uh, for all of us. Um, we'll have to get you on next week and uh, and uh, pick your brain on on some of this stuff from from this week because I'm sure you are like bursting at the seams with all kinds of stuff to uh, to say. Um, yeah. yeah, one of them I just want to say really quick is that the professor who said that the substitutionary atonement of Christ made God cruel. He has yeah. a very very horrible, horrible view of God, and he has a horrible view of man. He elevates man to essentially sinless perfection with what he said, and he and he, he creates God as this bully who just needs to forgive everybody. He he just who who wishes. It's just it's absurd. It, that's absurd. It, well, it, it, maybe just brief comment. Uh, it's it's also they, they evidently were instructed or came to accept caricatures, which if you were laity, maybe that would be so bad. But these are philosophers, theologians. They're supposed to be like know what they're talking about. But like if you read any through any like systematic theology, whatever tradition, I I think of Richard Watson like. They're basically, they're Socinians here. Like, but so a lot of the arguments against the Socinians, like, oh, they try to, to pervert the opinion of the Orthodox. They present God as implacable and naturally vengeful, like in the sense of like, uh, not in terms of having retributive justice, but like as having to be bribed or bought off. And that's how they'll describe it. I'm like, well, no one, we don't believe that. But you know, are they'll embrace other caricatures, like in the backside of the cross, Leclerc and Peterson will be like. Well, this view of the atonement, um, God purposely misdirects his wrath. And I'm like, well, no, because the union of Christ in nature through grace in terms of his godship and will is what allows this whole thing to work because he identifies with sinners. Obvious. Or it requires a split in the Godhead. I'm like, how? How does the voluntary offering of the Son to the Father through the eternal spirit to satisfy the one justice of the God, of God, so they'll just they'll make all these caricatures. So not only they just reject sound doctrine, they just they seem to have a persistent ignorance or blindness as to what it is. And the problem is, of course, students do too. But they'll be impressed by what the professors say, and so they'll warp their view of scripture. They're not well grounded in historical theology, and so all sorts of problems arise from that. But. Uh, yeah. probably should go now. So at least yeah, my, no, I'll need to leave pretty soon anyway. Yeah, so. no, that, that's right. And so, you know, I, I'll say one, one last appeal to professors of Northwest Nazarene university. Um, Dean Richard Thompson, who I talked to today, Dr. Bankard, others. If, if there, if you truly believe that Sean is, is misrepresenting, if he's blackmailing, if he's, I mean, all the other things that you accuse him of doing, then we ask you come on this show and 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 do what you have not done for him yet, which is point out those errors that, that you claim he's made. Point out those things. And then also, if you're going to do that, that you need to clearly speak what your positions are on each of these subjects so that if you believe he's misrepresented you, tell us what you actually believe so that the world can know. Um, this podcast will be downloaded many, 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 many times over. This is a flagship podcast of a, of a very large podcast network. And so lots of people will see this. You will have an opportunity to, to set the record straight if that is what you uh, want to do. So, um, I'm open on this. Uh, two of you guys have my cell phone number, Dr. Thompson and, uh, and the, uh, the actual dean who's out on leave today 
or that leave this month. You have my cell phone number as well. I'm sure if you call Sean, he's happy to give you my cell phone number too. So it's there for you um, to, yeah. to get a hold of me. Yeah, I, I would want to add uh, to Claire just for precision's sake. I wouldn't say that Dr. Bankard uh, accepts sinless perfection because at least not as articulated by Wesley, although his preferred term was Christian perfection, uh, because Bankard in one of his sermons uh, explicitly denies uh, entire sanctification. And it just, I think we're going to say he has a low view of sin, like almost like the natural man is, yeah, sure he sins, but it's no big deal. Uh, that, 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 I think that would be an accurate characterization. Yeah. Of Dr. But Bankard he did deny, um, he did, he does deny the doctrine of original sin from what, I gathered um, in well, terms I mean, of a historical Adam. Yeah. Well, he, th- he thinks basically cause humans wrote, yeah, it, there's, I, if I wanted to follow, there were some other leads on him and other professors, what they would mean by original sin anyway. But yeah, they don't think in terms of uh, that humans were created in a state of original righteousness and that um, there are certain consequences, both in terms of relationship with God and as well as natural ability, like human nature suffers a, an injury, a corruption, so that it is wide. It affects everything. That grace is necessary for any movement of God, good at all. But uh, he does have a very low view of sin, and I, I think of the holiness of God as well. So that much, I think you've correctly pointed out. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, yeah. which is unfortunate. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for for that. Uh, thank you, Josiah, for being on as well. Um, Sean, thanks for all the work you've done. I mean, it's it really is for me. I love seeing younger people stand up. I, I wish a lot more would do that. So um, please be a friend of the show. Come on in, in the future um, if, if you'd like. And and again, Northwest Nazarene University, uh, reach out. If you want to correct a record, if you want to go on record to say what you actually believe, please come on. I, we will have that forum for you um, on that. Uh, you all have a good night. Pastor Justin Pierce will be hosting and be back again next week. So good night. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.